Hello, my name is Neil Donald Walsh. You are about to have an extraordinary experience. You're about to hear a conversation with God. Yes, 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 I know that's not possible. You probably think or have been taught that's not possible. One can talk to God, sure, but not with God. I mean, God's not going to talk back, right? At least not in the form of a regular, everyday kind of conversation. Well, that's what I thought, too. Then this, this experience happened to me. I mean that literally. I mean the experience happened to me. The words you're about to hear were not written by me. They happened to me, and as you listen, the same experience will happen to you, for we are all led to the truth for which we are ready. God, it turns out, talks to everybody, the good and the bad, the saint and the scoundrel, and certainly all of us in between. Take you, for instance. God has come to you in many ways in your life. This is just another one of them. How many times have you heard the old axiom, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear? In the spring of 1992, it was around Easter, as I recall, an extraordinary phenomenon occurred in my life. God began talking with you, through me. Let me explain. I was very unhappy during that period, personally, professionally, and emotionally, and my life was feeling like a failure on all levels. And as I'd been in the habit for years of writing my thoughts down in letters, which, by the way, I usually never delivered, I picked up my trusty yellow legal pad and began pouring out my feelings. But this time, rather than another letter to another person I imagined to be victimizing me, I, I thought I'd go straight to the source, straight to the greatest victimizer of them all. I decided to write a letter to God. It was a spiteful, passionate letter, full of confusion, contortions, and condemnations, and a pile of angry questions. Why wasn't my life working? What would it take to get it to work? Why could I not find happiness in relationship? Was the experience of adequate money going to elude me forever? And finally, and most emphatically, what had I done to deserve a life of such continuing struggle? To my surprise, as I scribbled out the last of my bitter, unanswerable questions and prepared to toss my pen aside, my hand remained poised over the paper as if held there by some invisible force. Abruptly, the pen began moving on its own. I had no idea what I was about to write, but an idea seemed to be coming, so I, I decided to flow with it. Out came... Do you really want an answer to all these questions, or are you just venting? I blinked, and then my mind came up with a reply. I wrote that down, too. Both. I'm venting, sure, but if these questions have answers, I'd sure as hell like to hear them. You are sure as hell about a lot of things, but wouldn't it be nice to be sure as heaven? And I wrote, what is that supposed to mean? Before I knew it, I had begun a conversation and I was not writing so much as taking dictation. What you are about to hear is a reading of a large portion of that dialogue. I hope you receive benefit from listening to it. The dialogue begins with a very simple question, actually. How does God talk, and to whom? I talk to everyone. All the time. The question is not to whom do I talk. But who listens? First, let's exchange the word talk with the word communicate. It's a much better word, a much fuller, more accurate one. When we try to speak to each other, me to you, you to me, 
we are immediately constricted by the unbelievable limitation of words. For this reason, I do not communicate by words alone. In fact, rarely do I do so. My most common form of communication is through feeling. Feeling is the language of the soul. If you want to know what's true for you about something, look to how you're feeling about it. Feelings are sometimes difficult to discover and often even more difficult to acknowledge. Yet hidden in your deepest feelings is your highest truth. The trick is to get to those feelings. I will show you how. Again, if you wish. I also communicate with thought. Thought and feelings are not the same, although they can occur at the same time. In communicating with thought, I often use images and pictures. For this reason, thoughts are more effective than mere words as tools of communication. In addition to feelings and thoughts, I also use the vehicle of experience as a grand communicator. And finally, when feelings and thoughts and experience all fail, I use words. Words are really the least effective communicator. They are most open to misinterpretation, most often misunderstood. Why is that? It is because of what words are. Words are merely utterances, noises that stand for feelings, thoughts, and experience. They're symbols, signs, insignias. They're not truth. They're not the real thing. Words may help you understand something. Experience allows you to know. Yet there are some things you cannot experience. So I've given you other tools of knowing, and these are called feelings. And so, too, thoughts. Now, the supreme irony here is that you've all placed so much importance on the Word of God and so little on the experience. In fact, you place so little value on experience that when what you experience of God differs from what you've heard of God, you automatically discard the experience and own the words, when it should be just the other way around. Your experience and your feelings about a thing represent what you factually and intuitively know about that thing. Words can only seek to symbolize what you know and can often confuse what you know. These, then, are the tools with which I communicate. Yet they are not the methods. For not all feelings, not all thoughts, not all experience, and not all words are from me. Many words have been uttered by others in my name. Many thoughts and many feelings have been sponsored by causes not of my direct creation. Many experiences result from these. The challenge is one of discernment. The difficulty is knowing the difference between messages from God and data from other sources. Discrimination is a simple matter with the application of a basic rule. Mine is always your highest thought, your clearest word, your grandest feeling. Anything less is from another source. Now, the task of differentiation becomes easy, for it should not be difficult even for the beginning student to identify the highest, the clearest, and the grandest. Yet will I give you these guidelines. The highest thought is always that thought which contains joy. The clearest words are those words which contain truth. The grandest feeling is that feeling which you call love. Joy, truth, 
love. These three are interchangeable, and one always leads to the other. It matters not in which order they are placed. Having with these guidelines determined which messages are mine and which have come from another source, the only question remaining is whether my messages will be heeded. Most of my messages are not. Some because they seem too good to be true. Others because they seem too difficult to follow. Many because they are simply misunderstood. Most because they are not received. My most powerful messenger is experience, and even this you ignore. Especially this you ignore. Your world would not be in its present condition were you to have simply listened to your experience. The result of your not listening to your experience is that you keep reliving it over and over again. For my purpose will not be thwarted, nor my will be ignored. You will get the message sooner or later. I will not force you to, however. I will never coerce you. For I have given you a free will, the power to do as you choose. And I will never take that away from you, ever. And so I will continue sending you the same messages over and over again, throughout the millennia, to whatever corner of the universe you occupy. Endlessly will I send you my messages, until you have received them and held them close, calling them your own. My messages will come in a hundred forms, in a thousand moments across a million years. You cannot miss them if you truly listen. You cannot ignore them once truly heard. Thus will our communication begin in earnest. For in the past, you have only talked to me, praying to me, interceding with me, beseeching me. Yet now can I talk back to you, even as I'm doing here. How can I know this communication is from God? How do I know this is not my own imagination? What would be the difference? Do you not see that I could just as easily work through your imagination as anything else? I will bring you the exact right thoughts, words, or feelings at any given moment, suited precisely to the purpose at hand, using one device or several. You will know these words are from me because you, of your own accord, have never spoken so clearly. Had you already spoken so clearly on these questions, you would not be asking them. To whom does God communicate? Are there special people? Are there special times? All people are special, and all moments are golden. There's no person and there's no time one more special than another. Many people choose to believe that God communicates in special ways and only with special people. This removes the mass of the people from responsibility for hearing my message, much less receiving it, which is another matter and allows them to take someone else's word for everything. You don't have to listen to me, for you've already decided that others have heard from me on every subject, and you have them to listen to. By listening to what other people think they heard me say, you don't have to think at all. This is the biggest reason for most people turning from my messages on a personal level. If you acknowledge that you are receiving my messages directly, and you are responsible for interpreting them. And it's far safer and much easier to accept the interpretation of others, even others who have lived 2,000 years ago, than seek to interpret the message you may very well be receiving in this moment now. 
Yet I invite you to a new form of communication with God. A two-way communication. In truth, it is you who have invited me. For I have come to you in this form right now in answer to your call. Why do some people, take Christ for example, seem to hear more of your communication than others? Because some people are willing to actually listen. They're willing to hear. They're willing to remain open to the communication even when it seems scary or crazy or downright wrong. We should listen to God even when what's being said seems wrong? Especially when it seems wrong. If you think you are right about everything, who needs to talk with God? Go ahead and act on all that you know. But notice that you've all been doing that since time began. And look at what shape the world is in. Clearly, you've missed something. Obviously, there's something you don't understand. That which you do understand must seem right to you, because right is a term you use to designate something with which you agree. What you've missed will, therefore, appear at first to be wrong. The only way to move forward on this is to ask yourself, what would happen if everything I thought was wrong was actually right? Every great scientist knows about this. When what a scientist does is not working, a scientist sets aside all of the assumptions and starts over. All great discoveries have been made from a willingness and ability to not be right. And that's what's needed here. You cannot know God until you've stopped telling yourself that you already know God. You cannot hear God until you stop thinking that you've already heard God. I cannot tell you my truth until you stop telling me yours. But my truth about God comes from you. Who said so? Others. What others? Leaders, ministers, rabbis, priests, books, the Bible, for heaven's sake. Those are not authoritative sources. They aren't? No. Then what is? Listen to your feelings. Listen to your highest thoughts. Listen to your experience. Whenever any of these differ from what you've been told by your teachers or read in your books, forget the words. Words are the least reliable purveyor of truth. There is so much I want to say to you, so much I want to ask. <laughs> I don't know where to begin. For instance, why is it that you do not reveal yourself? If there really is a God, and you're it, why do you not reveal yourself in a way we can all understand? I have done so over and over. I'm doing so again right now. No, no, I mean by a method of revelation that is incontrovertible, that cannot be denied. Such as? such as appearing right now before my eyes. I am doing so right now. Where? Everywhere you look. No. No, I mean in an incontrovertible way. What way would that be? In what form or shape would you have me appear? In the form or shape you actually have. That would be impossible. For I have no form or shape you understand. I could adopt a form or shape that you could understand, 
But then everyone would assume that what they have seen is the one and only form and shape of God, rather than a form or shape of God, one of many. People believe I am what they see me as, rather than what they do not see. But I am the great unseen, not what I cause myself to be in any particular moment. In a sense, I am what I am not. It is from the am-notness that I come, and to it I always return. Yet when I come in one particular form or another, a form in which I think people can understand me, people assign me that form forevermore. And should I come in any other form to any other people, the first say I did not appear to the second, because I did not look to the second as I did to the first, nor say the same things. So how could it have been me? You see, then, it matters not in what form or in what manner I reveal myself. Whatever manner I choose and whatever form I take, none will be incontrovertible. But if you did something that would evidence the truth of who you are, beyond doubt or question... There are still those who would say it is of the devil or simply someone's imagination or any cause other than me... If I revealed myself as God Almighty, King of heaven and earth, and moved mountains to prove it, there are those who would say, it must have been Satan. And such is as it should be. For God does not reveal God's self to God's self from or through outward observation, but through inward experience. And when inward experience has revealed God's self, outward observation is not necessary. And if outward observation is necessary, inward experience is not possible. If then revelation is requested, it cannot be had. For the act of asking is a statement that it is not there, that nothing of God is now being revealed. Such a statement produces the experience. For your thought about something is creative and your word is productive and your thought and your word together are magnificently effective in giving birth to your reality. Therefore shall you experience that God is not now revealed. For if God were, you would not ask God to be. Does that mean I cannot ask for anything I want? Are you saying that praying for something actually pushes it away from us? This is a question which has been asked through the ages, and has been answered whenever it has been asked. Yet you have not heard the answer, or will not believe it. The question is answered again in today's terms and today's language, thusly. You will not have that for which you ask, nor can you have anything you want. This is because your very request is a statement of lack and you're saying you want a thing only works to produce that precise experience, wanting in your reality. The correct prayer is therefore never a prayer of supplication, but a prayer of gratitude. When you thank God in advance for that which you choose to experience in your reality, you, in effect, acknowledge that it is there, in effect. Thankfulness is thus the most powerful statement to God, an affirmation that even before you ask, I have answered. Therefore, never supplicate, appreciate.
But what if I am grateful to God in advance for something and it never shows up? That could lead to disillusionment and bitterness. Gratitude cannot be used as a tool with which to manipulate God, a device with which to fool the universe. You cannot lie to yourself. Your mind knows the truth of your thoughts. You're saying, thank you, God, for such and such, all the while being very clear that it isn't there in your present reality. You can't expect God to be less clear than you, and so produce it for you. God knows what you know, and what you know is what appears as your reality. But how then can I be truly grateful for something I know is not there? Faith. If you have but the faith of a mustard seed, you shall move mountains. You come to know it is there because I said it is there. Because I said that even before you ask, I shall have answered. Because I said and have said to you in every conceivable way, through every teacher you can name, that whatsoever you shall choose, choosing it in my name, so shall it be. Yet so many people say that their prayers have gone unanswered. No prayer, and a prayer is nothing more than a fervent statement of what is so, goes unanswered. Every prayer, every thought, every statement, every feeling is creative. To the degree that it is fervently held as truth, to that degree will it be made manifest in your experience. When it is said that a prayer has not been answered, what has in actuality happened is that the most fervently held thought, word, or feeling has become operative. Yet what you must know, and here's the secret, is that always it is the thought behind the thought, what might be called the sponsoring thought, that is the controlling thought. If therefore you beg and supplicate, there seems a much smaller chance that you will experience what you think you are choosing because the sponsoring thought behind every supplication is that you do not have now what you wish. That sponsoring thought becomes your reality. The only sponsoring thought which could override this thought is the thought held in faith that God will grant whatever is asked without fail. Some people have such faith, and very few. The process of prayer becomes much easier when, rather than having to believe that God will always say yes to every request, one understands intuitively that the request itself is not necessary. Then the prayer is a prayer of thanksgiving. It is not a request at all, but a statement of gratitude for what is so. When you say that a prayer is a statement of what is so, are you saying that God does nothing, that everything which happens after a prayer is a result of the prayer's action? If you believe that God is some omnipotent being who hears all prayers, says yes to some, no to others, and maybe, but not now, to the rest, you are mistaken. By what rule of thumb would God decide? If you believe that God is the creator and decider of all things in your life, you are mistaken. God is the observer, not the creator. And God stands ready to assist you in living your life, but not in the way you might expect. It is not God's function to create or uncreate the circumstances or conditions of your life. God created you in the image and likeness of God. You have created the rest through the power God has given you. 
God created the process of life and life itself as you know it. Yet God gave you free choice to do with life as you will. In this sense, your will for you is God's will for you. You're living your life the way you are living your life. I have no preference in the matter. This is the grand illusion in which you have engaged, that God cares one way or the other what you do. I do not care what you do, and that is hard for you to hear. Yet do you care what your children do when you send them out to play? Is it a matter of consequence to you whether they play tag or hide-and-seek or pretend? No, it is not, because you know they are perfectly safe. You have placed them in an environment which you consider friendly and very okay. Of course, you will always hope that they do not hurt themselves, and if they do, you will be right there to help them, heal them, allow them to feel safe again, to be happy again, to go and play again another day. But whether they choose hide-and-seek or pretend will not matter to you the next day either. You will tell them, of course, which games are dangerous to play. But you cannot stop your children from doing dangerous things. Not always, not forever. Not in every moment from now until death. It is the wise parent who knows this. Yet the parent never stops caring about the outcome. It is this dichotomy not caring deeply about the process, but caring deeply about the result, that comes close to describing the dichotomy of God. Yet God, in a sense, does not even care about the outcome, not the ultimate outcome. This is because the ultimate outcome is assured. And this is the second great illusion of man, that the outcome of life is in doubt. It is this doubt about ultimate outcome that has created your greatest enemy, which is fear. For if you doubt outcome, then you must doubt creator. You must doubt God. And if you doubt God, you must live in fear and guilt all your life. If you doubt God's intentions, God's ability to produce this ultimate result, then how can you ever relax? How can you ever truly find peace? Yet God has full power to match intentions with results. You cannot and will not believe in this, even though you claim that God is all-powerful. And so you have to create in your imagination a power equal to God, in order that you may find a way for God's will to be thwarted. So you have created in your mythology the being you call devil you have even imagined a god at war with this being, thinking that God solves problems the way you do. Finally, you have actually imagined that God could lose this war. All of this violates everything you say you know about God, but this doesn't matter. You live your illusion and thus feel your fear all out of your decision to doubt God. But what if you made a new decision? What then would be the result? I tell you this, you would live as the Buddha did, as Jesus did, as did every saint you have ever idolized. Yet, as with most of these saints, people would not understand you. And when you tried to explain your sense of peace, your joy in life, your inner ecstasy, they would listen to your words but not hear them. They would try to repeat your words, 
but would add to them. They would wonder how you could have what they cannot find. And then they would grow jealous. Soon jealousy would turn to rage, and in their anger they would try to convince you that it is you who do not understand God. And if they were unsuccessful at tearing you from your joy, they would seek to harm you. So enormous would be their rage. And when you told them it does not matter, that even death cannot interrupt your joy nor change your truth, they would surely kill you. Then, when they saw the peace with which you accepted death, they would call you a saint and love you again. For it is the nature of people to love, then destroy, then love again that which they value most. But why? Why do we do that? All human actions are motivated at their deepest level by one of two emotions, fear or love. In truth, there are only two emotions, only two words in the language of the soul. These are the opposite ends of the great polarity which I created when I produced the universe and your world as you know it today. These are the two points, the Alpha and the Omega, which allow the system you call relativity to be. Without these two points, without these two ideas about things, no other idea could exist. Every human thought and every human action is based in either love or fear. There's no other human motivation. And all other ideas are but derivatives of these two. They are simply different versions, different twists on the same theme. Think on this deeply, and you will see that it is true. This is what I have called the sponsoring thought. It is either a thought of love or fear. This is the thought behind the thought behind the thought. It is the first thought. It is prime force. It is the raw energy that drives the engine of human experience. And here is how human behavior produces repeat experience after repeat experience. It is why humans love, then destroy, then love again. Always there is the swing from one emotion to the other. Love sponsors fear, sponsors love, sponsors fear. And the reason is found in the first lie. The lie which you hold is the truth about God, that God cannot be trusted, that God's love cannot be depended upon, that God's acceptance of you is conditional, that the ultimate outcome is thus in doubt. For if you cannot depend on God's love to always be there, on whose love can you depend? If God retreats and withdraws when you do not perform properly, will not mere mortals also? And so it is that in the moment you pledge your highest love, you greet your greatest fear. The first thing you worry about after saying, I love you, is whether you'll hear it back. And if you hear it back, then you begin immediately to worry that the love you have just found you will lose. And so all action becomes a reaction, defense against loss, even as you seek to defend yourself against the loss of God. Yet if you knew who you are, that you are the most magnificent, the most remarkable, the most splendid being God has ever created, you would never fear. For who could reject such wondrous magnificence? 
Not even God could find fault in such a being. But you do not know who you are. And you think you are a great deal less. Where did you get the idea of how much less than magnificent you are? And the only people whose word you would take on everything from your mother and your father. These are the people who love you the most. Why would they lie to you? Yet have they not told you that you are too much of this and not enough of that? Have they not reminded you that you are to be seen and not heard? Have they not scolded you in some of the moments of your greatest exuberance? And did they not encourage you to set aside some of your wildest imagining? These are the messages you've received. And though they do not meet the criteria and are thus not messages from God, they might as well have been. For they have come from the gods of your universe, surely enough. It was your parents who taught you that love is conditional. You have felt their conditions many times, and that is the experience you take into your own love relationships. It is also the experience you bring to me. From this experience, you draw your conclusions about me. Within this framework, you speak your truth. God is a loving God, you say, but if you break his commandments, he will punish you with the eternal banishment and everlasting damnation. For have you not experienced the banishment of your own parents? Do you not know the pain of their damnation? How, then, could you imagine it to be any different with me? You have forgotten what it was like to be loved without condition. You do not remember the experience of the love of God. And so you try to imagine what God's love must be like, based on what you see of love in the world. You have projected the role of parent onto God, and have thus come up with a God who judges and rewards or punishes, based on how good he feels about what you've been up to. But this is a simplistic view of God, based on your mythology, it has nothing to do with who I am. Having thus created an entire thought system about God based on human experience rather than spiritual truths, you then create an entire reality around love. It is a fear-based reality rooted in the idea of a fearful, vengeful God. Its sponsoring thought is wrong. But to deny that thought would be to disrupt your whole theology. And though the new theology, which would replace it, would truly be your salvation, you cannot accept it, because the idea of a God who is not to be feared, who will not judge, and who has no cause to punish, is simply too magnificent to be embraced within your grandest notion of who and what God is. This fear-based love reality dominates your experience of love, indeed actually creates it. For not only do you see yourself receiving love which is conditional, you also watch yourself giving it in the same way. And even while you withhold and retreat and set your conditions, a part of you knows this is not what love really is. 
Still, you seem powerless to change the way you dispense it. You've learned the hard way, you tell yourself, and you'll be damned if you're going to leave yourself vulnerable again. Yet the truth is, you'll be damned if you don't. By your own mistaken thoughts about love, do you damn yourself never to experience it purely? So, too, do you damn yourself never to know me as I really am. Until you do. For you shall not be able to deny me forever. And the moment will come for our reconciliation. Every action taken by human beings is based in love or fear. Not simply those dealing with relationships. Decisions affecting business, industry, politics, religion, the education of your young, the social agenda of your nations, the economic goals of your society, choices involving war, peace, attack, defense, aggression, submission, determinations to covet or give away, to save or to share, to unite or to divide. Every single free choice you ever undertake arises out of one of the only two possible thoughts there are, a thought of love or a thought of fear. Fear is the energy which contracts, closes down, draws in, runs, hides, hoards, harms. Love is the energy which expands, opens up, sends out, stays, reveals, shares, heals. Fear wraps our bodies in clothing. Love allows us to stand naked. Fear clings to and clutches all that we have. Love gives all that we have away. Fear holds close. Love holds dear. Fear grasps. Love lets go. Fear rankles. Love soothes. Fear attacks. Love amends. Every human thought, word, or deed is based in one emotion or the other. You have no choice about this because there is nothing else from which to choose. But you have free choice about which of these to select. You make it sound so easy. And yet in the moment of decision... Fear wins more often than not. Why is that? You've been taught to live in fear. You have been told about the survival of the fittest and the victory of the strongest and the success of the cleverest. Precious little is said about the glory of the most loving. And so you strive to be the fittest, the strongest, the cleverest in one way or another. And if you see yourself as something less than this in any situation, you fear loss, for you have been told that to be less is to lose. And so, of course, you choose the action fear sponsors, for that is what you've been taught. Yet I teach you this. When you choose the action love sponsors, then you will do more than survive. Then you will do more than win. Then you will do more than succeed. Then will you experience the full glory of who you really are and who you can be. 
To do this, you must turn aside the teachings of your well-meaning but misinformed worldly tutors and hear the teachings of those whose wisdom comes from another source. There are many such teachers among you, as always there have been, for I will not leave you without those who would show you, teach you, guide you, and remind you of these truths. Yet the greatest reminder is not anyone outside you, but the voice within you. This is the first tool that I use, because it is the most accessible. The voice within is the loudest voice with which I speak, because it is the closest to you. It is the voice which tells you whether everything else is true or false, right or wrong, good or bad, as you have defined it. It is the radar that sets the course, steers the ship, guides the journey, if you but let it. It is the voice which tells you right now whether the very words you are listening to are words of love or words of fear. By this measure can you determine whether they are words to heed or words to ignore. You said that when I always choose the action that love sponsors, then I will experience the full glory of who I am and who I can be. Will you expand on this, please? There is only one purpose for all of life, and that is for you and all that lives to experience fullest glory. Everything else you say, think, or do is attendant to that function. There is nothing else for your soul to do and nothing else your soul wants to do. The wonder of this purpose is that it is never-ending. An ending is a limitation, and God's purpose is without such a boundary. Should there come a moment in which you experience yourself in your fullest glory, you will in that instant imagine an ever greater glory to fulfill. The more you are, the more you can become. And the more you can become the more you can yet be. The deepest secret is that life is not a process of discovery, but a process of creation. You are not discovering yourself, but creating yourself anew. Seek, therefore, not to find out who you are. Seek to determine who you want to be. There are those who say that life is a school that we are here to learn specific lessons, that once we graduate, we can go on to larger pursuits, no longer shackled by the body. Is this correct? It is another part of your mythology based on human experience. Life is not a school? Nope. We're not here to learn lessons? Nope. Well, then why are we here? To remember and recreate who you are. I've told you over and over again, you do not believe me. Yet that is well as it should be. For truly, if you do not create yourself as who you are, that you cannot be. Okay, all right, you've lost me. Let's go back to this school bit. I've, I've heard teacher after teacher tell us that life is a school. I'm frankly shocked to hear you deny that. School is a place you go if there is something you do not know that you want to know. It is not a place you go if you already know a thing and simply want to experience your knowingness. Life, as you call it, is an opportunity for you to know experientially what you already know conceptually. You need learn nothing to do this. You need merely remember what you already know and act on it. 
I'm not sure I understand. Let's start here. The soul, your soul, knows all there is to know all the time. There's nothing hidden to it, nothing unknown, yet knowing is not enough. The soul seeks to experience. You can know yourself to be generous, but unless you do something which displays generosity, you have nothing but a concept. You can know yourself to be kind, but unless you do someone a kindness, you have nothing but an idea about yourself. It is your soul's only desire to turn its grandest concept about itself into its greatest experience. Until concept becomes experience, all there is is speculation. I have been speculating about myself for a long time, longer than the age of the universe times the age of the universe. You see, then, how young it is, how new is my experience of myself. Wait, 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 you've lost me again. Your experience of yourself? Yes, let me explain it to you this way. In the beginning, that which is, is all there was. And there was nothing else. Yet, all that is could not know itself. Because all that is, is all there was. And there was nothing else. And so all that is, was not. For in the absence of something else... All that is, is not. This is the great is-not-is to which mystics have referred from the beginning of time. Now, all that is knew it was all there was. But this was not enough, for it could only know its utter magnificence conceptually, not experientially. Yet the experience of itself is that for which it longed for it wanted to know what it felt like to be so magnificent. Still, this was impossible, because the very term magnificent is a relative term. All that is could not know what it felt like to be magnificent unless that which is not showed up. In the absence of that which is not, that which is is not. Do you understand this? I think so. Keep going. All right. The one thing that all that is knew is there was nothing else. And so it could and would never know itself from a reference point outside of itself. Such a point did not exist. Only one reference point existed, and that was the single place within the is not is, the am not am. Still, the all of everything chose to know itself experientially. This energy, this pure, unseen, unheard, unobserved, and therefore unknown by anyone else energy, chose to experience itself as the utter magnificence it was. In order to do this, it realized it would have to use a reference point within. It reasoned, quite correctly, that any portion of itself would necessarily have to be less than the whole, and that if it thus simply divided itself into portions, each portion, being less than the whole, could look back on the rest of itself and see 
magnificence. And so all that is divided itself, becoming in one glorious moment that which is this and that which is that. For the first time, this and that existed, quite apart from each other, and still both existed simultaneously, as did all that was neither. Thus, three elements suddenly existed, that which is here, that which is there, and that which is neither here nor there, but which must exist for here and there to exist. It is the nothing which holds the everything. It is the non-space which holds the space. It is the all which holds the parts. Can you understand this? Are you following this? I think I am, actually. Believe it or not, you've used such a clear illustration that I think I'm actually understanding this. I'm going to go further. Now, this nothing which holds the everything is what some people call God. Yet that is not accurate either, for it suggests that there is something God is not, namely everything that is not nothing. But I am all things seen and unseen. So this description of me as the great unseen, the no thing, or the space between an essentially Eastern mystical definition of God, is no more accurate than the essentially Western practical description of God as all that is seen. Those who believe that God is all that is and all that is not are those whose understanding is correct. Now, in creating that which is here and that which is there, God made it possible for God to know itself. In the moment of this great explosion from within, God created relativity, the greatest gift God ever gave to itself. Thus, relationship is the greatest gift God ever gave to you, a point to be discussed in detail later. From the no thing, thus sprang the everything. A spiritual event entirely consistent, incidentally, with what your scientists call the Big Bang Theory. As the elements of all raced forth, time was created. For a thing was first here, then it was there. And the period it took to get from here to there was measurable. Just as the parts of itself which are seen began to define themselves relative to each other, so too did the parts which are unseen. God knew that for love to exist and to know itself as pure love, its exact opposite had to exist as well. So God voluntarily created the great polarity, the absolute opposite of love. Everything that love is not, what is now called fear. In the moment fear existed, love could exist as a thing that could be experienced. It is this creation of duality between love and its opposite, which humans refer to in their various mythologies as the birth of evil, the fall of Adam, the rebellion of Satan, and so forth. 
Just as you have chosen to personify pure love as the character you call God, so have you chosen to personify abject fear as a character you call the devil. Some on earth have established rather elaborate mythologies around this event, complete with scenarios of battles and war, angelic soldiers and devilish warriors, the forces of good and evil, of light and dark. This mythology has been mankind's early attempt to understand and tell others in a way they could understand, a cosmic occurrence of which the human soul is deeply aware, but of which the mind can barely conceive. In rendering the universe as a divided version of itself, God produced from pure energy all that now exists, both seen and unseen. In other words, not only was the physical universe thus created, but the metaphysical universe as well. The part of God which forms the second half of the am-not-am equation also exploded into an infinite number of units smaller than the whole. These energy units you would call spirits. In some of your religious mythologies, it is stated that God the Father had many spirit children. This parallel to the human experiences of life multiplying itself seems to be the only way the people could be made to hold in reality the idea of the sudden appearance, the sudden existence of countless spirits in the kingdom of heaven. In this instance, your mythical tales and stories are not so far from ultimate reality. For the endless spirits comprising the totality of me are, in a cosmic sense, my offspring. My divine purpose in dividing me was to create sufficient parts of me so that I could know myself experientially. There is only one way for the creator to know itself experientially as the creator, and that is to create. And so I gave to each of the countless parts of me, to all of my spirit children, the same power to create which I have as the whole. This is what your religions mean when they say that you were created in the image and likeness of God. This doesn't mean, as some have suggested, that our physical bodies look alike, although God can adopt whatever physical form God chooses for a particular purpose. It does mean that our essence is the same. We are composed of the same stuff. We are the same stuff, with all the same properties and abilities, including the ability to create physical reality out of thin air. My purpose in creating you, my spiritual offspring, was for me to know myself as God. I have no way to do that, save through you. Thus it can be said, and has been many times, that my purpose for you is that you should know yourself as me. This seems so amazingly simple, yet it becomes very complex because there is only one way for you to know yourself as me. <laughs> and that is for you first to know yourself as not me. Now try to follow this. Fight to keep up, because this gets very subtle here. Are you ready? I think so. Good. Remember, you've asked for this explanation. You've waited for it for years. You've asked for it in layman's terms, not theological doctrines or scientific theories. Yes, yes, I know what I've asked. 
And having asked, so shall you receive. Now, to keep things simple, I'm going to use your children of God mythological model as a basis for discussion because it is a model with which you're very familiar, and in many ways, it is not that far off. So let's go back to how this process of self-knowing must work. There is one way I could have caused all of my spiritual children to know themselves as parts of me, and that was simply to tell them. This I did. But you see, it was not enough for spirit to simply know itself as God or part of God or children of God or inheritors of the kingdom or whatever mythology you want to use. As I've already explained, knowing something and experiencing it are two different things. Spirit longed to know itself experientially, just as I did. Conceptual awareness was not enough for you. So I devised a plan. It is the most extraordinary idea in all the universe and the most spectacular collaboration. I say collaboration because all of you are in it with me. Under the plan, you as spirit would enter the physical universe just created. This is because physicality is the only way to know experientially what you know conceptually. It is, in fact, the reason I created the physical cosmos to begin with and the system of relativity which governs it, and all creation. Once in the physical universe, you, my spirit children, could experience what you know of yourself, but first you had to come to know the opposite. To explain this simply, you cannot know yourself as tall unless and until you become aware of short. You cannot experience the part of yourself that you call fat unless you also come to know thin. Taken to ultimate logic, you cannot experience yourself as what you are until you've encountered what you are not. This is the purpose of the theory of relativity and all physical life. It is by that which you are not that you yourself are defined. Now, in the case of the ultimate knowing, in the case of knowing yourself as the creator, you cannot experience yourself as creator unless and until you create. And you cannot create yourself until you uncreate yourself. In a sense, you have to first not be in order to be. Do you follow? I think. <laughs> Stay with it. Of course, there's no way for you to not be who and what you are. You simply are that pure creative spirit. Have been always and always will be. So you did the next best thing. You caused yourself to forget who you really are. Upon entering the physical universe, you relinquished your remembrance of yourself. This allows you to choose to be who you are rather than simply wake up in the castle, so to speak. It is in the act of choosing to be rather than simply being told that you are a part of God that you experience yourself as being at total choice, which is what, by definition, God is. Yet, how can you have a choice about something over which there is no choice? You cannot not be my offspring, no matter how hard you try. But you can forget. You are, have always been, and will always be a divine part of the divine whole, a member of the body. That is why the act of rejoining the whole, of returning to God, is called 
remembrance. You actually choose to remember who you really are or to join together with the various parts of you to experience the all of you, which is to say, the all of me. Your job on earth, therefore, is not to learn, because you already know, but to remember who you are and to remember who everyone else is. That is why a big part of your job is to remind others, that is, to remind them, so that they can remember also. All the wonderful spiritual teachers have been doing just that. It, it is your sole purpose. That is to say, your sole purpose. <laughs> My God, this is so simple and so symmetrical. I mean, it, it all fits in. It suddenly all fits. I see now a picture I've never quite put together before. Good. That's good. That is the purpose of this dialogue. You have asked me for answers. I have promised I would give them to you. You will render my words accessible to many people. It is part of your work. Now you have many questions, many inquiries to make about life. We have here placed the foundation. We've laid the groundwork for other understandings. Let's go to the other questions, and don't worry. If there is something about what we've just gone through you do not understand, it'll all become clear to you soon enough. There's so much I want to ask. There's so many questions. I suppose I should start with the big ones, the obvious ones. Like, why is the world in the shape it's in? Of all the questions man has asked of God, this is the one asked most often. From the beginning of time, man has asked it. From the first moment to this, you have wanted to know, why must it be like this? The classic posing of the question is usually something like, if God is all-perfect and all-loving, why would God create pestilence and famine, war and disease, earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes and all manner of natural disaster, deep personal disappointment and worldwide calamity? The answer to this question lies in the deeper mystery of the universe and the highest meaning of life. I do not show my goodness by creating only what you call perfection all around you. I do not demonstrate my love by not allowing you to demonstrate yours. As I've already explained, you cannot demonstrate love until you can demonstrate not loving. A thing cannot exist without its opposite, except in the world of the Absolute. Yet the realm of the Absolute was not sufficient for either you or me. I existed there in the always, and it is from where you too have come. In the Absolute, there is no experience, only knowing. Knowing is a divine state. Yet the grandest joy is in being. Being is achieved only after experience. The evolution is this, knowing, experiencing, being. This is the Holy Trinity, the triune that is God. God the Father is knowing, the parent of all understandings, the begetter of all experience, for you cannot experience that which you do not know. 
God the Son is experiencing the embodiment, the acting out of all that the Father knows of itself. For you cannot be that which you have not experienced. God the Holy Spirit is being the disembodiment of all that the Son has experienced of itself, the simple exquisite isness possible only through the memory of the knowing and experiencing. This simple being is bliss. It is God's state after knowing and experiencing itself. It is that for which God yearned in the beginning. Of course, you're well past the point where you must have it explained to you that the father-son descriptions of God have nothing to do with gender. I use here the picturesque speech of your most recent scriptures. Much earlier holy writings placed this metaphor in a mother-daughter context. Neither is correct. Your mind can best hold the relationship as parent-offspring or that which gives rise to and that which is risen. Adding the third part of the Trinity produces this relationship, that which gives rise to, that which is risen, that which is. This triune reality is God's signature. It is the divine pattern. The three-in-one is everywhere found in the realms of the sublime. You cannot escape it in matters dealing with time and space, God and consciousness, or any of the subtle relationships. On the other hand, you will not find the triune truth in any of life's gross relationships. The triune truth is recognized in life's subtle relationships by everyone dealing with such relationships. Some of your religionists have described the triune truth as Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Some of your psychiatrists use the terms superconscious, conscious, and subconscious. Some of your spiritualists say mind, body, and spirit. Some of your scientists see energy, matter, ether. Some of your philosophers say a thing is not true for you until it is true in thought, word, and deed. When discussing time, you speak of three times only, past, present, future. Similarly, there are three moments in your perception, before, now, and after. In terms of spatial relationships, whether considering the points in the universe or various points in your own room, you recognize here, there, and the space in between. In matters of gross relationships, you recognize no in-between. That is because gross relationships are always dyads whereas relationships of the higher realm are invariably triads. Hence, there is left-right, up-down, big-small, fast-slow, hot-cold, and the greatest dyad ever created, male and female. There are no in-betweens in these dyads. A thing is either one thing or the other, or some greater or lesser version in relationship to one of these polarities. Within the realm of gross relationships, nothing conceptualized can exist without a conceptualization of its opposite. Most of your day-to-day -day experience is foundationed in this reality. Within the realm of sublime relationships, nothing which exists has an opposite. All is one, and everything progresses from one to the other in a never-ending circle.
Time is such a sublime realm in which what you call past, present, and future exist interrelationally. That is, they are not opposite, but rather parts of the same whole, progressions of the same idea, cycles of the same energy, aspects of the same immutable truth. If you conclude from this that past, present, and future exist at one and the same time, you're right. It now is not the moment to discuss that. We can get into this in much greater detail when we explore the whole concept of time, which we'll do later. The world is the way it is because it could not be any other way and still exist in the gross realm of physicality. Earthquakes and hurricanes, floods and tornadoes, and other of what you call natural disasters are but movements of the elements from one polarity to the other. The whole birth-death cycle is part of this movement. These are the rhythms of life and everything in gross reality is subject to them, because life itself is a rhythm. It is a wave, a vibration, a pulsation, at the very heart of the all that is. Illness and disease are opposites of health and wellness, and are made manifest in your reality at your behest. You cannot be ill without at some level causing yourself to be. And you can be well again in a moment by simply deciding to be. Deep personal disappointments are responses which are chosen, and worldwide calamities are the result of worldwide consciousness. Your question infers that I choose these events, that it is my will and desire they should occur. Yet I do not will these things into being. I merely observe you doing so. And I do nothing to stop them, because to do so would be to thwart your will. That, in turn, would deprive you of the God experience, which is the experience you and I have chosen together. Do not condemn, therefore, all that you would call bad in the world. Rather, ask yourself, what about this have you judged bad, and what, if anything, you wish to do to change it? Inquire within rather than without, asking, What part of myself do I wish to experience now in the face of this calamity? What aspect of being do I choose to call forth? For all of life exists as a tool of your own creation, and all of its events merely present themselves as opportunities for you to decide and be who you are. This is true for every soul, and so you see there are no victims in the universe, only creators. The masters who have walked this planet all knew this. That is why, no matter which master you might name, none imagined themselves to be victimized, though many were truly crucified. Each soul is a master, though some do not remember their origins or their heritages. Yet each creates the situation and the circumstance for its own highest purpose and its own quickest remembering in each moment called now. Judge not, then, 
the karmic path walked by another. Envy not success, nor pity failure, for you know not what is success or failure in the soul's reckoning. Call not a thing calamity, nor joyous event, until you decide or witness how it is used. For is a death a calamity if it saves the lives of thousands? And is a life a joyous event if it has caused nothing but grief? Yet even this you should not judge, but keep always your own counsel and allow others theirs. This does not mean ignore a call for help, nor the urging of your own soul to work toward the change of some circumstance or condition. It does mean avoiding labels and judgment while you do whatever you do. For each circumstance is a gift, and in each experience is hidden a treasure. There was once a soul who knew itself to be the light. This was a new soul, and so... Anxious for experience. I am the light, it said. I am the light. Yet all the knowing of it and all the saying of it could not substitute for the experience of it. And in the realm from which this soul emerged, there was nothing but the light. Every soul was grand. Every soul was magnificent. And every soul shone with the brilliance of my awesome light. And so the little soul in question was as a candle in the sun. In the midst of the grandest light of which it was part, it could not see itself, nor experience itself as who and what it really is. Now it came to pass that this soul yearned and yearned to know itself, and so great was its yearning that I one day said, Do you know, little one, what you must do to satisfy this yearning of yours? Oh, what, God, what? I'll do anything, the little soul said. You must separate yourself from the rest of us, I answered, and then you must call upon yourself the darkness. What is the darkness, O Holy One? the little soul asked. That which you are not, I replied, and the soul understood. And so this the soul did, removing itself from the all, yea, going even unto another realm. And in this realm, the soul had the power to call into its experience all sorts of darkness, and this it did. Yet in the midst of all the darkness did it cry out, Father, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? Even as have you in your blackest times. Yet I have never forsaken you, but stand by you always, ready to remind you of who you really are, ready, always ready, to call you home. Therefore, be a light unto the darkness, and curse it not, and forget not who you are in the moment of your encirclement by that which you are not. But do you praise to the creation, even as you seek to change it, and know that what you do in the time of your greatest trial can be your greatest triumph. For the experience you create is a statement of who you are and who you want to be. 
I've told you this story, the parable of the little soul and the sun, so that you might better understand why the world is the way it is and how it can change in an instant the moment everyone remembers the divine truth of their highest reality. Now, there are those who say that life is a school and that these things which you observe and experience in your life are for your learning. I've addressed this before, and I tell you again, you came into this life with nothing to learn. You have only to demonstrate what you already know. In the demonstration of it, will you function it out and create yourself anew through your experience. Thus do you justify life and give it purpose. Thus do you render it holy. Are you saying that all the bad things that happen to us are things of our own choosing? Do you mean that even the world's calamities and disasters are at some level created by us so that we can, what, experience the opposite of who we are? And if so, isn't there some less painful way, less painful to ourselves and others, to create opportunities for us to experience ourselves? You've asked several questions, and they're all good ones. Let's take them one at a time. No, not all the things which you call bad. Which happen to you are of your own choosing. Not in the conscious sense which you mean. They are all of your own creation. You are always in the process of creating. Every moment, every minute, every day. How you can create, we'll go into later. For now, just take my word for it. You are a big creation machine. And you are turning on a new manifestation literally as fast as you can think. Events, occurrences, happenings, conditions, circumstance, all are created out of consciousness. Individual consciousness is powerful enough. You can imagine what kind of creative energy is unleashed whenever two or more are gathered in my name. And mass consciousness? Why, that is so powerful it can create events and circumstances of worldwide import and planetary consequences. It would not be accurate to say, not in the way you mean it, that you are choosing these consequences. You are not choosing them any more than I am choosing them. Like me, you are observing them and deciding who you are with regard to them. Yet there are no victims in the world and no villains, and neither are you a victim of the choices of others. At some level, you have all created that which you say you detest, and having created it, you have chosen it. This is an advanced level of thinking, and it is one which all masters reach sooner or later. For it is only when they can accept responsibility for all of it that they can achieve the power to change part of it. So long as you entertain the notion that there is something or someone else out there doing it to you, you disempower yourself to do anything about it. Only when you say, I did this, can you find the power to change it. It is much easier to change what you are doing than to change what another is doing. The first step in changing anything is to know and accept that you have chosen it to be what it is. If you can't accept this on a personal level, agree to it through your understanding that we are all one. Seek then to create change, not because the thing is wrong, but because it no longer makes an accurate statement of who you are. There's only one reason to do anything as a statement to the universe of who you are. Used in this way, life becomes self-creative. You use life to create yourself as who you are, 
and who you've always wanted to be. There's also only one reason to undo anything, because it is no longer a statement of who you want to be. It does not reflect you. It does not represent you. That is, it does not represent you. If you wish to be accurately represented, you must work to change anything in your life which does not fit into the picture of you that you wish to project into eternity. In the largest sense, all the bad things that happen are of your choosing. The mistake is not in choosing them, but in calling them bad. For in calling them bad, you call yourself bad, since you created them. This label you cannot accept, so rather than label yourself bad, you disown your own creations. It is this intellectual and spiritual dishonesty which lets you accept a world in which conditions are as they are. If you had to accept or even felt a deep inner sense of personal responsibility for the world, it would be a far different place. This would certainly be true if everyone felt responsible. That this is so patently obvious is what makes it so utterly painful and so poignantly ironic. The world's natural calamities and disasters, its tornadoes and hurricanes, volcanoes and floods, its physical turmoils, are not created by you specifically. What is created by you is the degree to which these events touch your life. Events occur in the universe which no stretch of the imagination could claim you instigated or created. These events are created by the combined consciousness of man. All of the world co-creating together produces these experiences. What each of you do individually is move through them, deciding what, if anything, they mean to you, and who and what you are in relationship to them. Thus, you create collectively and individually the life and times you are experiencing for the sole purpose of evolving. You've asked if there's a less painful way to undergo this process, and the answer is yes. Yet nothing in your outward experience will have changed. The way to reduce the pain which you associate with earthly experiences and events, both yours and those of others, is to change the way you behold them. You cannot change the outer event, for that has been created by the lot of you. And you are not grown enough in your consciousness to alter individually that which has been created collectively. So you must change the inner experience. This is the road to mastery in living. Nothing is painful in and of itself. Pain is the result of wrong thought. It is an error in thinking. A master can disappear the most grievous pain. In this way, the master heals. Pain results from a judgment you have made about a thing. Remove the judgment, and the pain disappears. Judgment is often based upon previous experience. Your idea about a thing derives from a prior idea about that thing. Your prior idea results from a still prior idea, and that idea from another, and so forth, like building blocks, until you get all the way back in the hall of mirrors to what I call first thought. All thought is creative, and no thought is more powerful than original thought.
That is why this is sometimes also called original sin. Original sin is when your first thought about a thing is in error. That error is then compounded many times over each time you have a second or third thought about a thing. It is the job of the Holy Spirit to inspire you to new understandings that can free you from your mistakes. Are you saying that I shouldn't feel badly about the starving children of Africa? The violence and injustice in America? The, the earthquake that kills hundreds in Brazil? There are no shoulds or shouldn'ts in God's world. Do what you want to do. Do what reflects you, what represents you as a grander version of yourself. If you want to feel bad, feel bad. But judge not, and neither condemn. For you know not why a thing occurs, nor to what end. And remember you this, that which you condemn will condemn you, and that which you judge you will one day become. Rather, seek to change those things, or support others who are changing those things, which no longer reflect your highest sense of who you are. Yet, bless all, for all is the creation of God, through life living, and that is the highest creation. Could we just, could we just stop here for a minute and let me catch my breath? Did I hear you say there are no shoulds or shouldn'ts in God's world? That is correct. How can that be? If there are none in your world, where would they be? Indeed, where? I repeat the question. Where else would shoulds and shouldn'ts appear if not in your world? In your imagination. But those who have taught me all about the rights and wrongs, the do's and don'ts, the shoulds and shouldn'ts, told me all those rules were laid down by you, by God. And those who taught you were wrong. I have never set down a right or wrong, a do or a don't. To do so would be to strip you completely of your greatest gift, the opportunity to do as you please and experience the results of that, the chance to create yourself anew in the image and likeness of who you really are, the space to produce a reality of a higher and higher you based on your grandest idea of what it is of which you are capable. To say that something, a thought, a word, an action is wrong would be as much as to tell you not to do it. To tell you not to do it would be to prohibit you. To prohibit you would be to restrict you. To restrict you would be to deny the reality of who you really are, as well as the opportunity for you to create and experience that truth. There are those who say that I have given you free will, yet these same people claim that if you do not obey me, I will send you to hell. What kind of free will is that? Does this not make a mockery of God? To say nothing of any sort of true relationship between us? Well, now we're getting into another area I wanted to discuss, and that's this whole business about heaven and hell. From what I'm gathering here, there's no such thing as hell. There is hell, but it is not what you think. And you do not experience it for the reasons you have been given. What is hell? It is the experience of the worst possible outcome of your choices, decisions, and creations. It is the natural consequence of any thought which denies me or says no to who you are in relationship to me. It is the pain you suffer through wrong thinking. Yet even the term wrong thinking is a misnomer because there is no such thing as that which is wrong. Hell is the opposite of joy. 
It is unfulfillment. It is knowing who and what you are and failing to experience that. This being less, that is hell. And there is none greater for your soul. But hell does not exist as this place you have fantasized, where you burn in some everlasting fire, exist in some state of everlasting torment. What, what purpose could I have in that? Even if I did hold the extraordinarily ungodly thought that you did not deserve heaven, why would I have a need to seek some kind of revenge or punishment for your failing? Wouldn't it be a simple matter for me to just dispose of you? What vengeful part of me would require that I subject you to eternal suffering of a type and at a level beyond description? If you answer, the need for justice... Would not a simple denial of communion with me in heaven serve the ends of justice? Is the unending infliction of pain also required? I tell you, there is no such experience after death as you have constructed in your fear-based theologies. Yet there is an experience of the soul so unhappy, so incomplete, so less than whole, so separated from God's greatest joy, that to your soul this would be hell. But I tell you, I do not send you there, nor do I cause this experience to be visited upon you. You yourself create the experience, whenever and however you separate yourself from your own highest thought about you. You yourself create the experience, whenever you deny yourself, whenever you reject who and what you really are. Yet even this experience is never eternal. It cannot be, for it is not my plan that you shall be separated from me forever and ever. Indeed, such a thing is an impossibility. For to achieve such an event, not only would you have to deny who you are, I would have to as well. This I will never do. And so long as one of us holds the truth about you, the truth about you shall ultimately prevail. But if there is no hell, does that mean that I can do what, what I want, act as I wish, commit any act, without fear of retribution? Is it fear that you need in order to be, do, and have what is intrinsically right? Must you be threatened in order to be good? What is being good? Who gets to have the final say about that? Who sets the guidelines? Who makes the rules? I tell you this. You are your own rule maker. You set the guidelines. And you decide how well you have done, how well you are doing. For you are the one who has decided who and what you really are, and who you want to be. And you are the only one who can assess how well you're doing. No one else will judge you ever for why and how could God judge God's own creation and call it bad. If I wanted you to be and do everything perfectly, I would have left you in the state of total perfection whence you came. The whole point of the process was for you to discover yourself. Create yourself as you truly are and as you truly wish to be. Yet you could not be that unless you also had a choice to be something else. Should I therefore punish you for making a choice that I myself have laid before you? If I did not want you to make the second choice, why would I create other than the first? This is a question you must ask yourself before you would assign me the role of a condemning God. The direct answer to your question is, yes, you may do as you wish without fear of retribution. It may serve you, however, to be aware of consequences. Consequences are results, natural outcomes. These are not at all the same as retributions or punishments. Outcomes are simply that, 
They are what results from the natural application of natural laws. They are that which occurs quite predictably as a consequence of what has occurred. All physical life functions in accordance with natural laws. Once you remember these laws and apply them, you have mastered life at the physical level. What seems like punishment to you, or what you would call evil or bad luck, is nothing more than a natural law asserting itself. Then if I were to know these laws and obey them, I would never have a moment's trouble again. Is that what you're telling me? You would never experience yourself as being in what you call trouble. You would not understand any life situation to be a problem. You would not encounter any circumstance with trepidation. You would put an end to all worry, doubt, and fear. You would live as you fantasize Adam and Eve lived, not as disembodied spirits in the realm of the absolute, but as embodied spirits in the realm of the relative. Yet you would have all the freedom, all the joy, all the peace, and all the wisdom, understanding, and power of the spirit you are. You would be a fully realized being. This is the goal of your soul. This is its purpose, to fully realize itself while in the body, to become the embodiment of all that it really is. This is my plan for you. This is my ideal, that I should become realized through you. That thus, concept is turned into experience, that I might know myself experientially. The laws of the universe are laws that I laid down. They are perfect laws, creating perfect function of the physical. Have you ever seen anything more perfect than a snowflake? Its intricacy, its design, its symmetry, its conformity to itself and originality from all else, all are a mystery. You wonder at the miracle of this awesome display of nature. Yet if I can do this with a single snowflake, what think you I can do, have done, with the universe? Were you to see the symmetry of it, the perfection of its design, from the largest body to the smallest particle, you would not be able to hold the truth of it in your reality. Even now, as you get glimpses of it, you cannot yet imagine or understand its implications. Yet you can know there are implications, far more complex and far more extraordinary than your present comprehension can embrace. Shakespeare said it wonderfully, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Then how can I know these laws? How can I learn them? It is not a question of learning, but of remembering. How can I remember them? <laughs> Begin by being still. Quiet the outer world, so that the inner world might bring you sight. This insight is what you seek, yet you cannot have it while you are so deeply concerned with your outer reality. Seek, therefore, to go within as much as possible. And when you are not going within, come from within as you deal with the outside world. Remember this axiom. If you do not go within, you go without. Put it in the first person as you repeat it to make it more personal. If I do not go within, I go without. You have been going without all your life. Yet you do not have to and never did. There is nothing you cannot be, there is nothing you cannot do, there is nothing you cannot have. Well, that sounds like a pie-in-the-sky promise.
What other kind of promise would you have God make? Would you believe me if I promised you less? For thousands of years, people have disbelieved the promises of God for the most extraordinary reason. They were too good to be true. So you've chosen a lesser promise, a lesser love. For the highest promise of God proceeds from the highest love. Yet you cannot conceive of a perfect love, and so a perfect promise is also inconceivable, as is a perfect person. Therefore you cannot believe even in yourself. Failing to believe in any of this means failure to believe in God. For belief in God produces belief in God's greatest gift, unconditional love, and God's greatest promise, unlimited potential. May, may I interrupt you here? I hate to interrupt God when he's on a roll, but I've heard this talk of unlimited potential before, and it doesn't square with the human experience. Forget the difficulties encountered by the average person. What about the challenges of those born with mental or physical limitations? Is their potential unlimited? You have written so in your own scripture, in many ways and in many places. Give me one reference. Look to see what you have written in Genesis chapter 11, verse 6 of your Bible. It says, uh, And the Lord said, Behold, the people are one, and they have all one language. And this is only... And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Yes. Now, can you trust that? Well, that does not answer the question of the feeble, the infirm, the handicapped, those who are limited. You think they are limited, as you put it, not of their choice? Do you imagine that a human soul encounters life challenges, whatever they may be? By accident. Is this your imagining? Do you mean that a soul chooses what kind of life it will experience ahead of time? No. That would defeat the purpose of the encounter. The purpose is to create your own experience and thus create yourself in the glorious moment of now. You do not therefore choose the life you will experience ahead of time. You may, however, select the persons, places, and events, the conditions and circumstances, the challenges and obstacles, the opportunities and options with which to create your experience. You may select the colors for your palette, the tools for your chest, the machinery for your shop. What you create with these is your business. That is the business of life. Your potential is unlimited in all that you've chosen to do. Do not assume that a soul which has been incarnated in a body which you call limited has not reached its full potential, for you do not know what that soul was trying to do. You do not understand its agenda. You are unclear as to its intent. Therefore, bless every person and condition and give thanks. Thus you affirm the perfection of God's creation and show your faith in it. For nothing happens by accident in God's world, and there is no such thing as coincidence. Nor is the world buffeted by random choice or something you call fate. If a snowflake is utterly perfect in its design, do you not think the same could be said about something as magnificent as your life? But even Jesus healed the sick. Why would he heal them if their condition was so perfect? Jesus did not heal those he healed because he saw their condition as imperfect. He healed those he healed because he saw those souls asking for healing as part of their process. He saw the perfection of the process. 
He recognized and understood the soul's intention. Had Jesus felt that all illness, mental or physical, represented imperfection, would he not have simply healed everyone on the planet all at once? Do you doubt that he could do this? No. No, I believe he could have. Good. Then the mind begs to know, why did he not do it? Why would the Christ choose to have some suffer and others be healed? For that matter, why does God allow any suffering at any time? This question has been asked before, and the answer remains the same. There is perfection in the process, and all life arises out of choice. It is not appropriate to interfere with choice, nor to question it. It is particularly inappropriate to condemn it. What is appropriate is to observe it, and then to do whatever might be done to assist the soul in seeking and making a higher choice. Be watchful, therefore, of the choices of others, but not judgmental. Know that their choice is perfect for them in this moment now. Yet stand ready to assist them should the moment come when they seek a newer choice, a different choice, a higher choice. Move into communion with the souls of others and their purpose, their intention will be clear to you. This is what Jesus did with those he healed. And with all those whose lives he touched, Jesus healed all those who came to him or who sent others to him, supplicating for them. He did not perform a random healing. To have done so would have been to violate a sacred law of the universe. Allow each soul to walk its path. But does that mean we must not help anyone without being asked? Surely not. Or we would never be able to help the starving children of India, or the tortured masses of Africa, or the poor, or the downtrodden anywhere. All humanitarian effort would be lost, all charity forbidden. Must we wait for an individual to cry out to us in desperation, or for a nation of people to plead for help, before we're allowed to do what is obviously right? You see, the question answers itself. If a thing is obviously right, do it. Remember to exercise extreme judgment regarding what you call right and wrong. A thing is only right or wrong because you say it is. A thing is not right or wrong intrinsically. It isn't. Rightness or wrongness is a subjective judgment in a personal value system. By your subjective judgments do you create yourself. By your personal values do you determine and demonstrate who you are. The world exists exactly as it is so that you may make these judgments. If the world existed in perfect condition, your life process of self-creation would be terminated. It would end. A lawyer's career would end tomorrow where there are no more litigation. A doctor's career would end tomorrow where there are no more illness. A philosopher's career would end tomorrow where there are no more questions. And God's career would end tomorrow where there are no more problems. Precisely. You have put it perfectly. We, all of us, would be through creating were there nothing more to create. We, all of us, have a vested interest in keeping the game going. Much as we all say we would like to solve all the problems, we dare not solve all the problems, or there will be nothing left for us to do. Your industrial-military complex understands this very well. That is why it opposes mightily any attempt to install a war-no-more government anywhere. Your medical establishment understands this, too. That is why it staunchly opposes. It must, it has to for its own survival. Any new miracle drug or cure, to say nothing of the possibility of miracles themselves. 
The religious community also holds this clarity. That is why it attacks uniformly any definition of God, which does not include fear, judgment, and retribution, and any definition of self, which does not include their own idea of the only path to God. If I say to you, you are God, where does that leave religion? If I say to you, you are healed, where does that leave science and medicine? If I say to you, you shall live in peace, where does that leave the peacemakers? If I say to you, the world is fixed, where does that leave the world? What now of plumbers? The world is filled with essentially two kinds of people, those who give you things you want and those who fix things. In a sense, even those who simply give you things you want, the butchers, the bakers, the candlestick makers are also fixers, for to have a desire for something is often to have a need for it. That is why addicts are said to need a fix. Be careful, therefore, that desire not become addiction. Are you saying the world will always have problems? Are you saying that you actually want it that way? I am saying that the world exists the way it exists, just as a snowflake exists the way it exists, quite by design. You have created it that way, just as you have created your life exactly as it is. I want what you want. The day you really want an end to hunger... There will be no more hunger. I have given you all the resources with which to do that. You have all the tools with which to make that choice. You have not made it. Not because you cannot make it. The world could end world hunger tomorrow. You choose not to make it. You claim that there are good reasons that 40,000 people a day must die of hunger. There are no good reasons. Yet, at a time when you say you can do nothing to stop 40,000 people a day from dying of hunger... You bring 50,000 people a day into your world to begin a new life. And this you call love. This you call God's plan. It is a plan which totally lacks logic or reason to say nothing of compassion. I am showing you in stark terms that the world exists the way it exists because you have chosen for it to. You are systematically destroying your own environment, then pointing to so-called natural disasters as evidence of God's cruel hoax or nature's harsh ways. You have played the hoax on yourself, and it is your ways which are cruel. Nothing, nothing is more gentle than nature. And nothing, nothing has been more cruel to nature than man. Yet you step aside from all involvement in this, deny all responsibility. It is not your fault, you say. And in this you are right. It is not a question of fault. It is a matter of choice. You can choose to end the destruction of your rainforests tomorrow. You can choose to stop depleting the protective layer hovering over your planet. You can choose to discontinue the ongoing onslaught of your Earth's ingenious ecosystem. You can seek to put the snowflake back together, or at least to halt its inexorable melting. But will you do it? You can similarly end all war tomorrow, 
simply, easily. All it takes, all it has ever taken, is for all of you to agree. Yet, if you cannot all agree on something as basically simple as ending the killing of each other, how can you call upon the heavens with shaking fist to put your life in order? I will do nothing for you that you will not do for yourself. That is the law and the prophets. The world is in the condition it is in because of you and the choices you have made or failed to make. Not to decide is to decide. The earth is in the shape it's in because of you and the choices you have made or failed to make. Your own life is the way it is because of you and the choices you have made or failed to make. But I did not choose to get hit by that truck. I did not choose to get mugged by that robber or raped by that maniac. People could say that. There are people in the world who could say that. You are all at root cause for the conditions which exist, which create in the robber the desire or the perceived need to steal. You have all created the consciousness which makes rape possible. It is when you see in yourself that which caused the crime that you begin at last to heal the condition from which it sprang. Feed your hungry. Give dignity to your poor. Grant opportunity to your less fortunate. End the prejudice which keeps masses huddled and angry with little promise of a better tomorrow. Put away your pointless taboos and restrictions upon sexual energy. Rather, help others to truly understand its wonder and to channel it properly. Do these things, and you will go a long way toward ending robbery and rape forever. As for the so-called accident, the truck coming around the bend, the brick falling from the sky, learn to greet each such incident as a small part of a larger mosaic. You have come here to work out an individual plan for your own salvation. Yet salvation does not mean saving yourself from the snares of the devil. There is no such thing as the devil, and hell does not exist. You are saving yourself from the oblivion of non-realization. You cannot lose in this battle. You cannot fail. Thus, it is not a battle at all, but simply a process. Yet, if you do not know this, you will see it as a constant struggle. You may even believe in the struggle long enough to create a whole religion around it. This religion will teach that struggle is the point of it all. This is a false teaching. It is in not struggling that the process proceeds. It is in surrendering that the victory is won. Accidents happen because they do. Certain elements of the life process have come together in a particular way at a particular time with particular results, results which you choose to call unfortunate for your own particular reasons. Yet they may not be unfortunate at all, given the agenda of your soul. I tell you this, there is no coincidence, and nothing happens by accident. Each event and adventure 
is called to yourself by yourself in order that you might create and experience who you really are. All true masters know this. That is why mystic masters remain unperturbed in the face of the worst experiences of life, as you would define them. The great teachers of your Christian religion understand this. They know that Jesus was not perturbed by the crucifixion, but expected it. He could have walked away, but he did not. He could have stopped the process at any point. He had that power, yet he did not. He allowed himself to be crucified in order that he might stand as man's eternal salvation. Look, he said, at what I can do. Look at what is true, and know that these things and more shall you also do. For have I not said, ye are gods? Yet you do not believe. If you cannot, then believe in yourself. Believe in me. Such was Jesus' compassion that he begged for a way and created it to so impact the world that all might come to heaven, self-realization, if in no other way than through him. For he defeated misery and death, and so might you. The grandest teaching of Christ was not that you shall have everlasting life, but that you do. Not that you shall have brotherhood in God, but that you do. Not that you shall have whatever you request, but that you do. All that is required is to know this, for you are the creator of your own reality. And life can show up no other way for you than that way in which you think it will. You think it into being. This is the first step in creation. God the Father is thought. Your thought is the parent which gives birth to all things. This is one of the laws we are to remember. Yes. Can you tell me others? I've told you others. I've told you them all since the beginning of time. Over and over I've told you them. Teacher after teacher have I sent you. You do not listen to my teachers. You kill them. But why? Why do we kill the holiest among us? We kill them or dishonor them, which is the same thing. Why? Because they stand against every thought you have that would deny me. And deny me you must if you are to deny yourself. Why would I want to deny you or me? Because you're afraid. And because my promises are too good to be true. Because you cannot accept the grandest truth. And so you must reduce yourself to a spirituality which teaches fear and dependence and intolerance rather than love and power and acceptance. You're filled with fear, and your biggest fear is that my biggest promise might be life's biggest lie. And so you create the biggest fantasy you can to defend yourself against this. You claim that any promise which gives you the power and guarantees you the love of God must be the false promise of the devil. God would never make such a promise, you tell yourself. Only the devil would, to tempt you into denying God's true identity as the fearsome, judgmental, jealous, vengeful, and punishing entity of entities. 
even though this description better fits the definition of a devil, if there were one. You have assigned devilish characteristics to God in order to convince yourself not to accept the godlike promises of your Creator or the godlike qualities of the self. Such is the power of fear. I'm trying to let go of my fear. Will you tell me again more of the laws? The first law is that you can be, do, and have whatever you can imagine. The second law is that you attract what you fear. Why is that? Emotion is the power which attracts. That which you fear strongly, you will experience. An animal, which you consider a lower form of life, even though animals act with more integrity and greater consistency than humans, knows immediately if you are afraid of it. Plants, which you consider an even lower form of life, respond to people who love them far better than to those who couldn't care less. None of this is by coincidence. There is no coincidence in the universe. Only a grand design, an incredible snowflake. Emotion is energy in motion. When you move energy, you create effect. If you move enough energy, you create matter. Matter is energy conglomerated, moved around, shoved together. If you manipulate energy long enough in a certain way, you get matter. Every master understands this law. It's the alchemy of the universe. It's the secret of all life. Thought is pure energy. Every thought you have, have ever had, and ever will have, is creative. The energy of your thought never, ever dies. Ever. It leaves your being and heads out into the universe, extending forever. A thought is forever. All thoughts congeal. All thoughts meet other thoughts, crisscrossing in an incredible maze of energy, forming an ever-changing pattern of unspeakable beauty and unbelievable complexity. Like energy attracts like energy, forming, to use simple words, clumps of energy of like kind. When enough similar clumps crisscross each other, run into each other, they stick to each other, to use another simple term. It takes an incomprehensibly huge amount of similar energy sticking together thusly to form matter. But matter will form out of pure energy. In fact, that is the only way it can form. Once energy becomes matter, it remains matter for a very long time, unless its construction is disrupted by an opposing or dissimilar form of energy. This dissimilar energy, acting upon matter, actually dismembers the matter, releasing the raw energy of which it was composed. This is, in elementary terms, the theory behind your atomic bomb. Einstein came closer than any other human being, before or since, to discovering, explaining, and functionalizing the creative secret of the universe. You should now better understand how people of like mind can work together to create a favored reality. 
the phrase, wherever two or more are gathered in my name, becomes much more meaningful. Of course, when entire societies think a certain way, very often astonishing things happen, not all of them necessarily desirable. For instance, a society living in fear very often actually, inevitably, produces in form that which it fears most. Similarly, large communities or congregations often find miracle-producing power in combined thinking, or what some people call common prayer. And it must be made clear that even individuals, if their thought, prayer, hope, wish, dream, fear, is amazingly strong, can, in and of themselves, produce such results. Jesus did this regularly. He understood how to manipulate energy and matter, how to rearrange it, how to redistribute it, how to utterly control it. Many masters have known this. Many know it now. You can know it right now. This is the knowledge of good and evil of which Adam and Eve partook. Until they understood this, there could be no life as you know it. Adam and Eve, the mythical names you have given to represent first man and first woman, were the father and mother of the human experience. What has been described as the fall of Adam was actually his upliftment, the greatest single event in the history of humankind. For without it, the world of relativity would not exist. The act of Adam and Eve was not original sin, but in truth, first blessing. You should thank them from the bottom of your hearts, for in being the first to make a wrong choice, Adam and Eve produced the possibility of making any choice at all. In your mythology, you have made Eve the bad one, the temptress who ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and coyly invited Adam to join her. This mythological setup has allowed you to make woman man's downfall ever since, resulting in all manner of warped realities, not to mention distorted sexual views and confusions. How can you feel so good about something so bad? What you most fear is what will most plague you. Fear will draw it to you like a magnet. All your holy scriptures of every religious persuasion and tradition which you have created contain the clear admonition, fear not. Do you think this is by accident? The laws are very simple. Thought is creative. Fear attracts like energy. Love is all there is. Oops, she got me on that third one. How can love be all there is if fear attracts like energy? Love is the ultimate reality. It is the only, the all. The feeling of love is your experience of God. In highest truth, love is all there is, all there was, and all there ever will be. When you move into the absolute, you move into love. The realm of the relative was created in order that I might experience myself. This has already been explained to you. This does not make the realm of the relative real. It is a created reality you and I have devised and continue to devise in order that we may know ourselves experientially. Yet the creation can seem very real. 
Its purpose is to seem so real we accept it as truly existing. In this way, God has contrived to create something else other than itself. Though in strictest terms, this is impossible since God is, I am, all that is. In creating something else, namely the realm of the relative, I have produced an environment in which you may choose to be God rather than simply being told that you are God, in which you may experience Godhead as an act of creation rather than a conceptualization in which the little candle in the sun, the littlest soul, can know itself as the light. Fear is the other end of love. It is the primal polarity. In creating the realm of the relative, I first created the opposite of myself. Now, in the realm in which you live on the physical plane, there are only two places of being, fear and love. Thoughts rooted in fear will produce one kind of manifestation on the physical plane. Thoughts rooted in love will produce another. The masters who have walked the planet are those who have discovered the secret of the relative world and refuse to acknowledge its reality. In short, masters are those who have chosen only love. In every instance, in every moment, in every circumstance, even as they were being killed, they loved their murderers. Even as they were being persecuted, they loved their oppressors. This is very difficult for you to understand, much less emulate. Nevertheless, it is what every master has ever done. It doesn't matter what the philosophy, it doesn't matter what the tradition, it doesn't matter what the religion, it is what every master has done. This example and this lesson has been laid out so clearly for you, time and time again, over and over has it been shown to you. Through all the ages and in every place, through all your lifetimes and in every moment, the universe has used every contrivance to place this truth before you, in song and story, in poetry and dance, in words and in motion, in pictures of motion, which you call motion pictures, and in collections of words, which you call books. From the highest mountain it has been shouted, in the lowest place its whisper has been heard. Through the corridors of all human experience has this truth been echoed. Love is the answer. Yet you have not listened. Now come you to this conversation, asking God again what God has told you countless times in countless ways. Yet I will tell you again, here. Will you listen now? Will you truly hear? What do you think brought you to this? How does it come to pass that you are listening to this? Do you think I know not what I am doing? There are no coincidences in the universe. I have heard the crying of your heart. I have seen the searching of your soul. I know how deeply you have desired the truth. In pain have you called out for it, and in joy. Unendingly have you beseeched me, show myself, explain myself, reveal myself. I am doing so here, in terms so plain, 
you cannot misunderstand. In language so simple, you cannot be confused. In vocabulary so common, you cannot get lost in the verbiage. So go ahead now. Ask me anything, anything. I will contrive to bring you the answer. The whole universe will I use to do this, so be on the lookout. This is far from my only tool. You may ask a question, then put this down, but watch, listen. The words to the next song you hear, the information in the next article you read, the storyline of the next movie you watch, the chance utterance of the next person you meet, or the whisper of the next river, the next ocean, the next breeze that caresses your ear. All these devices are mine. All these avenues are open to me. I will speak to you if you will listen. I will come to you if you will invite me. I will show you then that I have always been there, always. I have searched for the path to God all my life. I know you have. And now, I have found it and I can't believe it. It feels like I'm sitting here talking to myself. You are. That does not seem like what a communication with God would feel like. You want bells and whistles? I'll see what I can arrange. <laughs> you know, don't you, that there are those who will call this a blasphemy, especially if you keep showing up as such a wise guy. <laughs> Let me explain something to you. You have this idea that God shows up in only one way in life. That's a very dangerous idea. It stops you from seeing God all over. If you think God looks only one way or sounds only one way or is only one way, you're going to look right past me night and day. You'll spend your whole life looking for God and not finding her because you're looking for a him. I use this as an example. It has been said that if you don't see God in the profane and the profound, you're missing half the story. That is a great truth. God is in the sadness and the laughter, in the bitter and the sweet. There is a divine purpose behind everything, and therefore a divine presence in everything. Well, I once began writing a book called God is a Salami Sandwich. That would have been a very good book. I gave you that inspiration. Why didn't you write it? <laughs> well, it felt like blasphemy, or at the very least, horribly irreverent. You mean wonderfully irreverent. What gave you the idea that God is only reverent? God is the up and the down, the hot and the cold, the left and the right, the reverent and the irreverent. Think you that God cannot laugh? Did you imagine that God doesn't enjoy a good joke? Is it your knowing that God is without humor? I tell you, God invented humor. <laughs> Must you speak in hushed tones when you speak to me? Are slang words or tough language outside my ken? I tell you, you can speak to me as you would speak with your best friend. Do you think there is a word I haven't heard, a sight I have not seen, a sound I do not know? Is it your thought that I despise some of these while I love the others? I tell you, I despise nothing. None of it is repulsive to me. It's life. And life is the gift, the unspeakable treasure, the holy of holies.
I am life, for I am the stuff life is. Its every aspect has a divine purpose. Nothing exists, nothing, without a reason understood and approved by God. How can this be? How can this be? What are the evil which has been created by man? You cannot create a thing, not a thought, an object, an event, no experience of any kind which is outside of God's plan. For God's plan is for you to create anything, everything, whatever you want. In such freedom lies the experience of God being God. And this is the experience for which I created you and life itself. Evil is that which you call evil. Yet even that I love, for it is only through that which you call evil that you can know good. Only through that which you call the work of the devil that you can know and do the work of God. I do not love hot more than I love cold, high more than low, left more than right. It's all relative. It is all part of what is. I do not love good more than I love bad. Hitler went to heaven. When you understand this, you will understand God. But I have been raised to believe that good and bad do exist, that right and wrong are opposed, that some things are just not okay, not all right, not acceptable in the sight of God. Everything is acceptable in the sight of God, for how can God not accept that which is? To reject a thing is to deny that it exists. To say that it is not okay is to say that it is not a part of me, and that's impossible. Yet, hold to your beliefs and stay true to your values, for these are the values of your parents, of your parents' parents, of your friends, and of your society. They form the structure of your life, and to lose them would be to unravel the fabric of your experience. Still, Examine them, one by one. Review them, piece by piece. Do not dismantle the house, but look at each brick and replace those which appear broken, which no longer support the structure. Your ideas about right and wrong are just that, ideas. They are the thoughts which form the shape and create the substance of who you are. There would be only one reason to change any of these, only one purpose in making an alteration, if you are not happy with who you are. Only you can know if you are happy. Only you can say of your life, this is my creation in which I am well pleased. If your values serve you, hold to them, argue for them, fight to defend them. Yet seek to fight in a way which harms no one. Harm is not a necessary ingredient in healing. You know, you say hold to your values at the same time you say our values are all wrong. <laughs> Help me with this. I have not said your values are wrong, but neither are they right. They're simply judgments, assessments, decisions. For the most part, they are decisions made not by you, but by someone else. Your parents, perhaps, your religion, your teachers, historians, politicians. Very few of the value judgments you have incorporated into your truth are judgments you yourself have made based on your own experience. 
Yet experience is what you came here for. And out of your experience were you to create yourself. You have created yourself out of the experience of others. If there were such a thing as sin, this would be it. To allow yourself to become what you are because of the experience of others. This is the sin you have committed, all of you. You do not await your own experience. You accept the experience of others as gospel, literally. And then when you encounter the actual experience for the first time, you overlay what you think you already know onto the encounter. If you did not do this, you might have a wholly different experience, one that might render your original teacher or source wrong. In most cases, you don't want to make your parents, your schools, your religions, your traditions, your holy scriptures wrong, so you deny your own experience in favor of what you have been told to think. Nowhere can this be more profoundly illustrated than in your treatment of human sexuality. Everyone knows that the sexual experience can be the single most loving, most exciting, most powerful, most exhilarating, most renewing, most energizing, most affirming, most intimate, most uniting, most recreative physical experience of which humans are capable. Having discovered this experientially, you have chosen to accept instead the prior judgments, opinions, and ideas about sex promulgated by others all of whom have a vested interest in how you think. These opinions, judgments, and ideas have run directly contradictory to your own experience. Yet, because you are loath to make your teachers wrong, you convince yourself it must be your experience that is wrong. The result is that you have betrayed your highest truth about this subject with devastating results. You have done the same thing with money. Every time in your life that you have had lots and lots of money, you felt great. You felt great receiving it, and you felt great spending it. There was nothing bad about it, nothing evil, nothing inherently wrong. Yet you have so deeply ingrained within you the teachings of others on this subject that you have rejected your experience in favor of truth. Having adopted this truth as your own, you have formed thoughts around it, thoughts which are creative. You have thus created a personal reality about money which pushes it away from you. For why would you seek to attract that which is not good? Amazingly, you have created the same contradiction around God. Everything your heart experiences about God tells you that God is good. Everything your teachers teach you about God tells you God is bad. Your heart tells you God is to be loved without fear. Your teachers tell you God is to be feared, for he is a vengeful God. You are to live in fear of God's wrath, they say. You are to tremble in his presence. Your whole life through, you are to fear the judgment of the Lord, for the Lord is just, you are told. And God knows you will be in trouble when you confront the terrible justice of the Lord. You are therefore to be obedient to God's commands, or else. Above all, you are not to ask such logical questions as, if God wanted strict obedience to his laws, why did he create the possibility of those laws being violated? Ah, your teachers tell you, because God wanted you to have free choice. Yet what kind of choice is free when to choose one thing over the other brings condemnation? 
How is free will free when it is not your will but someone else's which must be done? Those who teach you this would make a hypocrite of God. You are told that God is forgiveness and compassion. Yet if you do not ask for this forgiveness in the right way, if you do not come to God properly, your plea will not be heard, your cry will go unheeded. Even this would not be so bad if there were only one proper way. But there are as many proper ways being taught as there are teachers to teach them. Most of you, therefore, spend the bulk of your adult life searching for the right way to worship, to obey, and to serve God. The irony of all this is that I do not want your worship. I do not need your obedience. And it is not necessary for you to serve me. These behaviors are the behaviors historically demanded of their subjects by monarchs, usually egomaniacal, insecure, tyrannical monarchs at that. They're not godly demands in any sense, and it seems remarkable that the world hasn't by now concluded that the demands are counterfeit, having nothing to do with the needs or desires of deity. Deity has no needs. All that is, is exactly that. All that is. It therefore wants or lacks nothing, by definition. If you choose to believe in a God who somehow needs something and has such hurt feelings if he doesn't get it that he punishes those from whom he expected to receive it, then you choose to believe in a God much smaller than I am. You truly are children of a lesser God. No, my children, please let me assure you again that I am without needs. I require nothing. This does not mean I am without desires. Desires and needs are not the same thing, although many of you have made them so in your present lifetime. Desire is the beginning of all creation. It is first thought. It is a grand feeling within the soul. It is God choosing what next to create. And what is God's desire? I desire first to know and experience myself in all my glory, to know who I am. Before I invented you and all the worlds of the universe, it was impossible for me to do so. Second, I desire that you shall know and experience who you really are through the power I have given you to create and experience yourself in whatever way you choose. Third, I desire for the whole life process to be an experience of constant joy, continuous creation, never-ending expansion, and total fulfillment in each moment of now. I have established a perfect system whereby these desires may be realized. They are being realized now. In this very moment, the only difference between you and me is that I know this. In the moment of your total knowing, which moment could come upon you at any time, you too will feel as I do always, totally joyful, loving, accepting, blessing, and grateful. These are the five attitudes of God. 
and before we are through with this dialogue, I will show you how the application of these attitudes in your life now can and will bring you to godliness. All of this is a very long answer to a very short question. Yes, hold to your values, so long as you experience that they serve you. Yet look to see whether the values you serve with your thoughts, words, and actions bring to the space of your experience the highest and best idea you ever had about you. Examine your values one by one. Hold them up to the light of public scrutiny. If you can tell the world who you are and what you believe without breaking stride or hesitating, you are happy with yourself. There is no reason to continue much further in this dialogue with me because you have created a self and a life for the self which needs no improvement. You have reached perfection. Well, my life is not perfect, nor is it close to being perfect. I, I am not perfect. I am, in fact, a bundle of imperfections. I wish, sometimes I wish with all my heart, that I could correct these imperfections, that I could know what causes my behaviors, what sets up my downfalls, what keeps getting in my way. That's why I've come to you, I guess. I haven't been able to find the answers on my own. I'm glad you came. I've always been here to help you. I'm here now. You don't have to find the answers on your own. You never had to. Yet it seems so presumptuous to simply sit down and dialogue with you this way, much less imagine that you, God, are responding. I mean, this is crazy. I see. The authors of the Bible were all sane, but you are crazy. The Bible writers were witnesses to the life of Christ and faithfully recorded what they heard and saw. Correction. Most of the New Testament writers never met or saw Jesus in their lives. They lived many years after Jesus left the earth. They wouldn't have known Jesus of Nazareth if they walked into him on the street. But... Uh, the Bible writers were great believers and great historians. They took the stories which had been passed down to them and to their friends by others, elders, from elder to elder, until finally a written record was made. And not everything of the Bible authors was included in the final document. Already churches had sprung up around the teachings of Jesus. And as it happens, whenever and wherever people gather in groups around a powerful idea, there were certain individuals within these churches or enclaves who determined what parts of the Jesus story were going to be told and how. This process of selecting and editing continued throughout the gathering, writing, and publishing of the Gospels and the Bible. Even several centuries after the original scriptures were committed to writing, a high council of the church determined yet one more time which doctrines and truths were to be included in the then official Bible, and which would be unhealthy or premature to reveal to the masses. And there have been other holy scriptures as well, each placed in writing in moments of inspiration by otherwise ordinary men, none of whom were any more crazy than you. But let's drive to the heart of your question. Why do you think it's crazy for you to be able to have a dialogue with God? Do you not believe in prayer? Yes, of course, but that's different. Prayer for me has always been one way. I ask, and God remains immutable. God has never answered a prayer? 
Oh, yes, of course, but never verbally, you see. Oh, I've had all kinds of things happen in my life that I was convinced was an answer, a very direct answer to prayer. But God has never spoken to me. Mm, I see. So this God in which you believe, this God can do anything. He just cannot speak. Of course God can speak, if God wants to. It just doesn't seem probable that God would speak to me, that God would want to speak to me. This is the root of every problem you experience in your life, for you do not consider yourself worthy enough to be spoken to by God. Good heavens, how can you ever expect to hear my voice if you don't imagine yourself to be deserving enough to even be spoken to? I tell you this, I am performing a miracle right now, for not only am I speaking to you, but to every person who is listening to these words. To each of them am I now speaking. I know who every one of them is. I know now who will find their way to these words. And I know that, just as with all my other communications, some will be able to hear, and some will be able to only listen, but will hear nothing. Now, here is an exclusive interview conducted by Michael Toms with James Redfield. James, one of the aspects of this book is that a lot of the words of God, as they're portrayed here in Conversations with God, are at odds with the religious doctrine and dogma of many of the religious institutions. What about that, that dichotomy? Well, I, I think that uh, it, it's really just indicative of where we are. I think that for so long, uh, spiritual thought has been held in dogma. Maybe uh, the culture could not hold it any other way. But I think at this point, we are shifting away from the dogma. Uh, the, the, um, uh, the germ of truth is moving uh, away from some of the, the older, more fundamental uh, institutions of religion uh, and in, into the the great dialogue that we're having, the great conversation, in my view, uh, where we're testing out for ourselves what to believe about spirituality because we will uh, find the, uh, the evidence for it uh, experientially. In the face of this grand conversation and the energy shifting over into the conversation, the, uh, the religious institutions then have to evolve themselves uh, and shift the dogma uh, uh, back toward the truth that I think is being defined uh, popularly. James, there's a quote in the book I want to recite here for you and get your comment on it. The deepest secret is that life is not a process of discovery, but a process of creation. Do you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I think there's there's a uh, semantic problem uh, right there. Uh, but essentially, I think what, what uh, is being conveyed in, in the conversations with God is that this is nothing that we're to discover as though uh, we did not, uh, did not already have it. Uh, in other words, uh, the, the living the spiritual life is really creating in the sense of, 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 of engaging the experience. Uh, and, and I think in, in that sense, it's very, very true. 
uh, I think that uh, in another way it feels like discovery. It feels like self-discovery. Uh, but I think we uh, do have to keep in mind that it's uh, uh, that we're really not just discovering, we're remembering. Uh, we're trying to open up to that which we uh, always have been. Taking that a little further, one of the things that permeates conversations with God is the idea and the concept of we create our own reality, you create your own reality. What is your perspective? Do we create our own reality? Well, I think that, uh, I really think what's being said here is that uh, we all create uh, the reality. Uh, and so there's, while while we personally are responsible for much of what happens to us personally, uh, also what happens to us personally is the result of what everybody else is creating out there and all the interfaces that happen. Uh, and I definitely think that that's true. Uh, that's why to say that you're absolutely creating everything that happens to you uh, uh, is, uh, to me, uh, too strict. Uh, but to say that you are involved, you're co-creating everything that happens to you, I think is is uh, is very close to the truth. Uh, but the main point in that, I think, is that uh, it's not so much what happens to us as how we react to what happens to us, because that's uh, uh, that way we can uh, make sure that if we react positively, uh, from a sense of love, then we are doing everything we can to keep our path on, on a positive track. I think you brought out a salient point here that it's not only recreating our own reality, but creating our own reality in the midst of many other realities being created by others. And this would explain or be a response to the critique that comes up about, well, did I create my cancer? Did I create my ill health? Uh, no. What about that? I mean, isn't that true? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it you know, if uh, we have to take responsibility for our part of it always, uh, but I think we also live within a particular social reality uh, that uh, influences not only how we think, but uh, influences the uh, level of healthiness around us. Uh, so I think that our our mission really is to uh, not only to continue to project the positive personally, but also. Uh, to be able to interact and and hold on to this positive when we interact with others because that that helps them turn their creative energy around into the positive as well, which is another point I think he made very clearly in here, and that is uh, uh, that uh, uh, the essence of relating is the act of forgiveness. Another thing about that's t talked about a lot in the book is that we create the devil and we create hell, and we also create heaven. Uh, what about that? Well, I think that's, uh, you know, I would call that the tenth insight. Uh, you know, we are to a place where we realize that the highest part of ourselves is that all-knowing God self that, uh, that truly evaluates how we're doing. Uh, and so uh, we have to uh, ultimately uh, face how we've lived our lives. Uh, how we've created, what how it has turned out. And uh, if we feel disappointed in aspects of that life, uh, it'll be us, it'll be ourselves that that create that disappointment. If we uh, are, are so cut off from the, the force of love that is who we are, uh, that we're in total fear, it is hellish. Uh, and that's the definition of hell, is when we're so cut off that we 
are in that space instead of in a love space that has the connection with uh, with the divine. At some point in the book, there wasn't a comparison or an equation of fear with hell. That that when we're in fear, we're we're out of love, and that can be a hellish situation. No, absolutely. I just think that's the you know recognition that we're having out there. You know, I called it the tenth insight because I think that's the insight that's that's uh, circulating through the culture right now. We know there's there's no other uh, judgment that's going to happen to us about our lives uh, other than the one that we impose and the greater part of us uh, imposes. So I think there's a, uh, there's a sense of uh, awareness uh, and an and, and, and imperative, too, I think, that to, to go out and, and live our lives uh, taking all the risks that we want, that we think uh, uh, we need to, uh, to, to uh, go for it all, to uh, try to create at our highest level, and take all the risks associated with that, because we know that, uh, 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 you know, we're, we we are going to feel responsible later on as to how well we've done it, uh, and we're going to want to do it as well as we can. James, one of the questions that came up for me was the reference to feelings as an indicator and a channel for truth. And uh, I'm wondering about, are we talking about levels of feelings? Because feelings have been the cause of wars and conflicts for millennia. And uh, so what about that idea of feelings being a channel for the truth? Well, you know, I, I, I took that to mean that that uh, uh, inwardly, once we get past the, uh, the, the negative feelings that maybe distract us, uh, but that 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 once we get clear that we have an inward feeling as to what is truth and what is not truth. Uh, and, of course, that's somewhat relative to our own situation. But uh, each of us, I think, knows intuitively uh, which move to make at any juncture in our lives. Now, we don't always do it because we rationalize it or we fall into fear about it and we, we can't really make the move. But at our highest level, uh, if we can get to that, we know what to do uh, and when to do it and what to say in every circumstance. Uh, we're guided. I mean, we have that higher self intuitive guidance at that level uh, uh, once we can uh, find it within our own experience. So in some sense, when you're talking about inward, you're really talking about going deeper to the deep, deeper level of our feelings, right? That's that's the way I would look at it. Yes, that... that uh, uh, you know, the, the, there are all kinds of emotions uh, that run uh, run through our experience. It can be, the, you know, the jealousy and irritation and hatred and all the rest. Um, but I think that those we know now are uh, uh, come from a place of fear, not a place of love. And if there's something we know, I think, here in the 90s, uh, if we're really going to, is this, if we're really going to live our uh, true spirituality uh, we have to stay in a space of love. First of all, we have to find that for ourselves and define it. And then we always have to come back to this space uh, of love, this, this, uh, be, this state of being that we, that we know as love. Uh, and uh, that's, uh, you know, you can abstractly debate uh, philosophy and religion and dogma all you want to, but nothing matters except coming back to that state and that space of love. And I think that's one thing that uh, has come into popular consciousness at this point. 
So there's a quote in the book that follows up on what you just said. The highest thought is always that thought which contains joy. The clearest words are those words which contain truth. The grandest feeling is that feeling which you call love, joy, truth, and love. That's pretty much echoing what you just said. Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, that that we really know now that that there is an experience out there that's that's available to us, uh, and uh, we don't want to just talk about it. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to just debate about it. We want to to go for it and experience that ourselves. And that's going to change everything because we are finally getting to the level of experience with all this. Uh, I always like to say that we've we've got a new image that's emerging out in the culture of what the good life is. The good life is to find that space of love, that space of joy, uh, that space of euphoria almost. Uh, because from that comes all the other things that we associate with fulfillment, uh, like a sense of mission, uh, a sense of making the world a better place. Uh, a sense of having good, positive relationships, uh, uh, knowing how to parent, all the rest. It all flows from staying in that space, and I think we know that now. James, a lot of people are feeling pessimistic and cynical and not really hopeful or optimistic about the future. And one of the quotes in the book that I'd like you to comment on is, I tell you this, all you see in your world is the outcome of your idea about it. W what is your comment on that that statement? Well, I think that's that's absolutely true and, and of so uh, immense importance right now. The ideas we have about how we can um, uh, turn the course of the world around, how we can uh, make it more positive, how, how we can solve our uh, social and, and uh, environmental problems, um, the, the ideas that we project about that uh, are going to create uh, the state of the future. And, uh, uh, you know, I think that, that uh, we, we've reached a point where we now know uh, how powerful we are in terms of our ideas and our visualization of the future. Uh, and I think it's, it's, it's got to be that understanding that carries us through right now. We cannot... Uh, just fall back into this fear reaction that the world is doomed uh, that can't be saved because I, I really believe that all the heroes are, are in place as I've said many times that uh, that we can you know, all the people who are who need to intervene in all our social problems uh, are already there uh, all, all we have to do is connect with this uh, the, the divine guidance and, and the courage uh, and um, uh, just everybody making a move at once can tr change the world literally overnight. James, what was the most impressive aspect of Conversations with God for you? Well, I I really liked the uh, the the foundation it was it was built upon uh, the basic uh, principles uh, that uh, uh, were voiced in the book. You know, um, a couple of sentences uh, that that I really loved is had to do with um, heaven. And I think the answer that God gave was, uh, there is no such thing as getting to heaven. There's only a knowing that you're already there. And, uh, you know, this whole, pr uh, the whole uh, theme of remembering, uh, I think is just so uh, uh, important uh, for us at this time. 
it's it's something again that I believe is is uh, emerging in the culture now. This awareness that hey, we are spiritual beings. Uh, we always have been, and all we have to do is open up to it and remember it, uh, and that our lives can can change uh, very very dramatically. So if you had something to share with people as to what they could do in these times, what would it be, James? Well, I, I think uh, what I like to say is is that each of us has to find our own experience of the divine. You know, we have to have that experience uh, whereby we become more than uh, than we were. We have a transcendent experience where our bodies feel different. Uh, we feel uh, like a like a full or more complete person. Uh, we are imbued with a kind of energy that the mystics have always talked about uh, as being uh, uh, transforming. Uh, and people find that in different ways. They find it in the churches and synagogues, uh, in prayer. They find it in meditation. But we also find it in dance and in uh, uh, body work and in uh, uh, the martial arts and uh, and we find it uh, in visiting sacred sites on this planet. You know, there's an there's an inspiring energy that uh, certain lo- locations can give us. Uh, and I think uh, I, I would say that that uh, the first uh, chore in the '90s is to go out and find that transcendent experience, uh, because of, of everything else springs from uh, that sense of being part of of the divine and having uh, uh, the source uh, uh, within that the mystics have always talked about. James, thank you for being with us today. Appreciate your taking the time. Thank you, Michael. Now, Michael Tom's interviews Neil Donald Walsh. Neil, how has your life changed since writing the book Conversations with God, an Uncommon Dialogue? Gosh, I think everything about my life is different. Uh, I have a relationship now that works, and uh, and works wonderfully. I have uh, all the money anyone could ever ask for, frankly, to be honest. I have uh, a great health. I'm in far better health than ever I was before. But I think the most important thing, because those are all exterior, is that it feels very much as if the interior part of me is finally coming together, is finally being repaired, is finally... I hate to use the overworked word, but it's finally being healed. I feel more one. I feel more one with myself, and I feel more at one with everyone else and everything. It's um, it's a healing of the deepest part of me that I've waited for for a long time, and that's, uh, I think, the largest difference that I notice as a result of this book. Do you have a spiritual practice now, a regular discipline that you follow? Well, uh, I'm not a very disciplined person. You know, I, I uh, when I was 27, they put a sign on the door outside my office, don't try to discipline this guy, just tap his genius. I used to laugh at that, but they never took it off the door. I worked at that place for 10 years. I think that they saw something uh, in me that they made fun of, but that was really true, which was that I had, how do I say this without sounding arrogant, I had a level of awareness and creativity that that might have been by some people's measurement at a genius level. I think many people do for that matter. But I absolutely had no sense of discipline. 
nor do I hope I ever have any. That's uh, <laughs> probably not politically correct to say that. But uh, I, if I had a bumper sticker I could uh, create, it would be down with discipline. And so I don't discipline myself. Uh, my spiritual practice in my everyday life uh, is what it is when it is that, and it's not that when it's not. So I meditate except on days that I don't. And I move through certain physical uh, exercises except on days when I don't. And I read a great many spiritual books except when I don't. And, uh, and so I allow myself really to flow freely through my experience of self and through my experience of all the rest of this wonderful adventure that we are mutually embarked upon. And I don't really uh, get too rigid with myself. I don't have schedules. I don't have a, a diet that I uh, really stick to religiously, to use a probably bad word, but uh, although I am careful with what I eat, eat in some ways. but So I'm not a terribly disciplined guy. Uh, I think there are probably uh, two disciplines that I, that I do adhere to. I don't drink any alcohol and I don't smoke, and I haven't for years. And those are about the only disciplines I can think of really in my life. Neil, have you always been interested in spiritual things? Yes, I have. I have from the earliest days of my life. When I was um, seven and eight years old, I was asking my parents questions that they couldn't answer. They sent me to parochial school. I was uh, uh, educated in a Roman Catholic school, and I would ask the nuns and the priests who would come in. Once a week, the priests would come in and teach catechism, and I would ask the priests and the pastor of the, of the parish the questions that he couldn't answer. And when I was nine or ten or eleven, those uh, pastors began saying to me, why don't you come out over to the rectory? We can talk about this some more. And they would actually invite me into their study, and I would talk theology with the priests when I was 10 and 11 years old. Now, obviously, it wasn't high theology, but it was high theology for an 11-year-old, without a doubt. And I asked uh, all kinds of questions that uh, provoked interesting conversations, like, how do we know truly what is right and wrong? You were raised Roman Catholic and eventually left the church. Why did you leave? Well, of course, it wasn't a decision that one makes overnight or in a split second. It was a, a cumulative thing. Uh, it was a cumulative thing that happened over a period of years, uh, my movement away from the church. But I think what really broke it for me was in my early 20s, oh, I was about 23 or 24, somewhere in there, I picked up a newspaper and I realized that uh, something astonishing had happened. The Roman Catholic Church had announced that eating meat on Fridays was no longer a sin. Now, you might say, well, what, what's the problem? Except that through all of my young years, when I was eight, nine, ten years old, uh, I had been a very devout uh, young Catholic boy, and I was uh, uh, very, very serious about uh, following all the rules, including uh, never sinning. And one of the things I didn't do for all the years uh, of my youth was I never ate meat on Fridays. And there were many times when I had to miss a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of uh, joy and fun <laughs> because I couldn't eat meat on Fridays, and everyone else around me was going to the ballpark for instance, and having a hot dog or whatever. And that's not a big deal, you know, in life, naturally. But in my life it was. And, and what I noticed was that what this brought up for me was, oh, I get it, right and wrong are a movable feast. Right and wrong, even the Roman Catholic Church changes its mind about what is or is not a sin. Well, if I thought that the Roman Catholic Church was going to change its mind from time to time about what was a sin and what was not a sin, what was right and wrong, I thought I'd better get out of that church. That church was a little bit too flexible for me, and that, that was said about all of religion. After you disconnected from the Catholic Church, did you pursue other religions? 
Yes, also having to do with the Roman Catholic Church. I was kicked out of the altar boys. <laughs> and I was a very devout uh, uh, young Catholic boy, and I had intended to become a priest. And at the age of 12, I was surreptitiously removed, uh, unceremoniously dumped uh, from the uh, local uh, altar boy contingent at my parish. And the reason that I was... Uh, I was fired, if you will, from the altar boys, is that I arrived for a, uh, for a procession. We had a processional that all the altar boys were going to be in carrying candles and the crucifix and so forth. And I was about three minutes late for that. Not too late to get into the procession, mind you, but too late for the uh, mother superior who was uh, nominally in charge of organizing the altar boys. And because I came into the sanctuary a bit late to get on my chasuble and my robes, she said, um, you don't, you're no longer part of us. Well, I, I, that was. A, you might think that's a petty little childhood event, but in fact, uh, I couldn't imagine because everyone I think had observed a great sense of devotion in me, and uh, in that Catholic Church, I was known as the one who had the calling, and they thought that I was going to become the next priest to emerge from that parish. Not, not taken lightly, I might add, in Catholic neighborhoods. And so, uh, for me to be dumped uh, that way from the altar boys said more things to me about the nature of human churches and humanly constructed religions and our true relationship with God. Because I didn't feel any separation from God at all because I had been three minutes late, and I was literally three minutes late, uh, but I did feel a great separation from my local parish church. And um, that really turned me away from Roman Catholicism, which was, uh, I'm sure, an enormous turning point in my life. And having said that, I, I should add that I honor uh, the Roman Catholic Church greatly, and I am very grateful to it, because it brought me my earliest sense uh, of the presence of something larger than myself in the universe. And, and, and it also taught me that honoring that larger part of the universe that existed outside of myself was not a bad thing to do. When I was uh, 17 and 18 and emerging from high school and getting into college, I began looking once again at the question of religion and theology. And I uh, moved into uh, the uh, Presbyterian Church and thought I would find a home there. And I did for a bit. And I was even asked by the, by the uh, congregation uh, where I attended if, I, if they could send me to, uh, uh, to the uh, seminary. And I would come back as an associate minister at that church uh, for a number of years to pay back the loan they were actually going to give me money to go because they saw, again, something inside of me. Uh, I'm not sure what it was, but it's been identified by a lot of people through the years uh, that might be useful in such an occupation as the ministry. But the more I delved into the uh, theological constructions of mainstream Protestantism, the more I began to realize that uh, there, too, I could not be comfortable and could not find a home. And that really uh, launched a 25-year investigation of virtually every spiritual tradition uh, on the face of the earth, of which I am currently aware. And I looked really at them all, some more than others, but at least touching bases with all of them. I read a great deal of comparative theology. I spent uh, days and weeks and months in the libraries uh, around the country where I began moving because of my career. And I looked uh, very deeply. I even had long conversations. I would sit down with uh, with rabbis. And with uh, I sat down once for uh, two days for a weekend with a man from the Middle East. And he explained a great many of the Middle Eastern uh, orthodox um, theologies. And uh, so I, I began to get uh, my mind deeply involved in the question of uh, how human beings experience the gods, the various gods of their understandings, and if any one of those ways would be comfortable for me. And I have to say, 
uh, that I could find a complete comfort uh, in none of those uh, constructions. How does God talk? And to whom? This is the root of every problem you experience in your life, for you don't consider yourself worthy enough to be spoken to by God. Good heavens, how can you ever expect to hear my voice if you don't imagine yourself to be deserving enough to even be spoken to? I tell you this, I am performing a miracle right now, for not only am I speaking to you, but to every person who is listening to these words. To each of them am I now speaking. I know who every one of them is. I know now who will find their way to these words. And I know that, just as with all my other communications, some will be able to hear, and some will be able to only listen, but will hear nothing. I have a hundred questions, you know, a thousand, a million. And the problem is I sometimes don't know where to begin. To start somewhere. Go ahead, right now. When will my life finally take off? What does it take to get it together and achieve even a modicum of success? Can the struggle ever end? Good. Now we're getting to it. Don't apologize for these questions. These are the questions men and women have been asking for hundreds of years. The questions were so silly they wouldn't be asked over and over again by each succeeding generation. So let's go to question one. I've established laws in the universe that make it possible for you to have, to create, exactly what you choose. These laws cannot be violated, nor can they be ignored. You are following these laws right now, even as you listen to this. You cannot not follow the law, for these are the way things work. You cannot step aside from this. You cannot operate outside of it. Every minute of your life you have been operating inside of it, and everything you have ever experienced you have thusly created. You are in a partnership with God. We share an eternal covenant. My promise to you is to always give you what you ask. Your promise is to ask, to understand the process of the asking and the answering. I've already explained this process to you once. I'll do so again, so that you clearly understand it. You are a threefold being. You consist of body, mind, and spirit. You could also call these the physical, the non-physical, and the metaphysical. This is the Holy Trinity, and it has been called by many names. That which you are, I am. I am manifested as three in one. Some of your theologians have called this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Your psychiatrists have recognized this triumvirate and called it conscious, subconscious, and superconscious. Your philosophers have called it the id, the ego, and the superego. Science calls this energy, matter, and antimatter. Poets speak of mind, heart, and soul. New Age thinkers refer to body, mind, and spirit. Your time is divided into past, 
present and future. Could this not be the same as subconscious, conscious, and superconscious? Space is likewise divided into three, here, there, and the space between. It is defining and describing this space between that becomes difficult, elusive. The moment you begin defining or describing, the space you describe becomes here or there. Yet we know this space between exists. It is what holds here and there in place, just as the eternal now holds before and after in place. These three aspects of you are actually three energies. You might call them thought, word, and action. All three put together produce a result, which in your language and understanding is called feeling or experience. Your soul, subconscious, id, spirit, past, is the sum total of every feeling you've ever had, created. Your awareness of some of these is called your memory. When you have a memory, you are said to remember. That is, to put back together, to reassemble the parts. When you reassemble all of the parts of you, you will have remembered who you really are. The process of creation starts with thought, an idea, conception, visualization. Everything you see was once someone's idea. Nothing exists in your world that did not first exist as pure thought. This is true of the universe as well. Thought is the first level of creation. Next comes the word. Everything you say is a thought expressed. It is creative and sends forth creative energy into the universe. Words are more dynamic, thus some might say more creative than thought, because words are a different level of vibration from thought. They disrupt, change, alter, affect the universe with greater impact. Words of the second level of creation. Next comes action. Actions are words moving. Words are thoughts expressed. Thoughts are ideas formed. Ideas are energies come together. Energies are forces released. Forces are elements existent. Elements are particles of God, portions of all, the stuff of everything. The beginning is God. The end is action. Action is God-creating or God-experienced. Your thought about yourself is that you are not good enough, not wondrous enough, not sinless enough to be a part of God, in partnership with God. You've denied for so long who you are that you've forgotten who you are. This has not occurred by coincidence. This is not happenstance. It is all part of the divine plan. For you could not claim, create, experience who you are if you already were it. It was necessary first for you to release, deny, forget your connection to me in order to fully experience it by fully creating it, by calling it forth. For your grandest wish and my grandest desire was for you to experience yourself as the part of me you are. You are therefore in the process of experiencing yourself by creating yourself anew in every single moment, as am I, through you. Do you see the partnership? Do you grasp its implications? It is a holy collaboration, truly a holy communion. Life will take off for you, then, when you choose for it to. 
You have not so chosen as yet. You have procrastinated, prolonged, protracted, protested. Now it is time that you promulgated and produced what you have been promised. To do this, you must believe the promise and live it. You must live the promise of God. The promise of God is that you are his son. Her offspring, its likeness, his equal. <laughs> Here is where you get hung up. You can accept his son, offspring, likeness, but you recoil at being called his equal. It is too much to accept, too much bigness, too much wonderment, too much responsibility. For if you are God's equal, that means nothing is being done to you and all things are created by you. There can be no more victims, no more villains, only outcomes of your thought about a thing. I tell you this, all you see in your world is the outcome of your idea about it. Do you want your life to truly take off? Then change your idea about it, about you. Think, speak, and act as the God you are. Of course, this will separate you from many, most of your fellow men. They will call you crazy. They will say you blaspheme. They will eventually have enough of you. Uh, they will attempt to crucify you. They will do this not because they think you are living in a world of your own illusions. Most men are gracious enough to allow you your private entertainments. But because sooner or later, others will become attracted to your truth by the promises it holds for them. Here is where your fellow men will interfere. For here is where you will begin to threaten them. For your simple truth, simply lived, will offer more beauty, more comfort, more peace, more joy, and more love of self and others than anything your earthly fellows could contrive. And that truth adopted would mean the end of their ways. It would mean the end of hatred and fear and bigotry and war, the end of the condemning and killing that has gone on in my name, the end of might is right, the end of purchase through power, the end of loyalty and homage through fear. The end of the world as they know it, and as you have created it thus far. So be ready, kind soul, for you will be vilified and spat upon, called names and deserted, and finally they will accuse you, try you, and condemn you, all in their own ways, from the moment you accept and adopt your holy cause, the realization of self. Why then do it? Because you are no longer concerned with the acceptance or approval of the world. You are no longer satisfied with what that has brought you. You are no longer pleased with what it has given others. You want the pain to stop, the suffering to stop, the illusion to end. You have had enough of this world as it presently is. You seek a newer world. Seek it no longer. Now, call it forth. Yes, well, can you help me to better understand how to do that? Yes. Go first to your highest thought about yourself. Imagine the you that you would be if you lived that thought every day. Imagine what you would think, do, and say, and how you would respond to what others do and say. Do you see any difference between that projection and what you think, do, and say now? Yes. Yes, I see a great deal of difference. Good. You should. 
since we know that right now you are not living your highest vision of yourself. Now, having seen the differences between where you are and where you want to be, begin to change, consciously change your thoughts, words, and actions to match your grandest vision. This will require tremendous mental and physical effort. It will entail constant, moment-to-moment -moment monitoring of your every thought, word, and deed. It will involve continued choice-making, consciously. This whole process is a massive move to consciousness. What you will find out if you undertake this challenge is that you've spent half your life unconscious. That is to say, unaware on a conscious level of what you are choosing in the way of thoughts, words, and deeds until you experience the aftermath of them. Then when you experience these results, you deny that your thoughts, words, and deeds had anything to do with them. This is a call to stop such unconscious living. It is a challenge to which your soul has called you from the beginning of time. That kind of continual mental monitoring seems as though it might be terribly exhausting. It could be, until it becomes second nature. In fact, it is your second nature. It is your first nature to be unconditionally loving. It is your second nature to choose to express your first nature, your true nature, consciously. Excuse me, but wouldn't this kind of non-stop editing of everything I think, say, and do make Jack a dull boy? Never. Different, yes. Dull, no. Was Jesus dull? I don't think so. Was the Buddha boring to be around? People flocked, begged to be in his presence. No one who's attained mastery is dull. Unusual, perhaps. Extraordinary, perhaps, but never dull. So, do you want your life to take off? Begin at once to imagine it the way you want it to be, and move into that. Check every thought, word, and action that does not fall into harmony with that. Move away from those. When you have a thought that is not in alignment with your higher vision, change to a new thought, then and there. When you say a thing that is out of alignment with your grandest idea, make a note not to say something like that again. When you do a thing that is misaligned with your best intention, decide to make that the last time. And make it right with whomever was involved, if you can. I've heard this before, but I've always railed against it because it seems so... so dishonest. I mean, if you're sick as a dog, you're not supposed to admit it. If you're broke as a pauper, you're never supposed to say it. If you're upset as hell, you're not supposed to show it. <laughs> Reminds me of the joke about the three people who were sent to hell. One was a Catholic, one was a Jew, one was a New Ager. The devil said to the Catholic, sneeringly, Well, how are you enjoying the heat? And the Catholic sniffed, I'm, I'm offering it up. The devil then asked the Jew, And how are you enjoying the heat? The Jew said, So what else could I expect but more hell? Finally, the devil approached the New Ager. Heat, the New Ager asked, perspiring. What heat? It's a good joke. But I'm not talking about ignoring the problem or pretending it isn't there. I'm talking about noticing the circumstance and then telling your highest truth about it. If you're broke, you're broke. It's pointless to lie about it and actually debilitating to try to manufacture a story about it so as not to admit it. Yet it's your thought about it. Broke is bad. This is horrible. I'm a bad person because good people who work hard and really try never go broke, etc. That rules how you experience brokenness. It's your words about it. I'm broke. I haven't a dime. I don't have any money. 
That dictates how long you stay broke. It's your actions surrounding it, feeling sorry for yourself, sitting around despondent, not trying to find a way out because wh what's the use anyway that creates your long-term reality? The first thing to understand about the universe is that no condition is good or bad. It just is. So stop making value judgments. The second thing to know is that all conditions are temporary. Nothing stays the same. Nothing remains static. Which way a thing changes depends on you. Excuse me, but I have to interrupt you here again. What about the person who's sick, but has the faith that will move mountains and so thinks, says, believes he's going to get better, only to die six weeks later? How does that square with all this positive thinking affirmative action stuff? That's good. You're asking the tough questions. You're not simply taking my word for any of this. There is a place on down the line when you'll have to take my word for this, because eventually you'll find that we can discuss this thing forever, you and I, until there's nothing left to do but try it or deny it. But we're not at that place yet. So let's keep the dialogue going. Let's keep talking. The person who has the faith to move mountains and dies six weeks later has moved mountains for six weeks. That may have been enough for him. He may have decided on the last hour of the last day, okay, I've had enough. I'm ready to go on now to another adventure. You may not have known of that decision because he may not have told you. The truth is he may have made that decision quite a bit earlier, days, weeks earlier, and not have told you, not have told anyone. You have created a society in which it is very not okay to want to die. Very not okay to be very okay with death. Because you don't want to die, you can imagine anyone wanting to die, no matter what their circumstances or condition. But there are many situations in which death is preferable to life, which I know you can imagine if you think about it for even a little bit. Yet these truths don't occur to you. They're not that self-evident when you are looking in the face of someone else who is choosing to die. And the dying person knows this. She can feel the level of acceptance in the room regarding her decision. Have you ever noticed how many people wait until the room is empty before they die? Some even have to tell their loved ones, no, really, go, get a bite to eat. Or go, get some sleep, I'm fine, I'll see you in the morning. And then when the loyal guard leaves... So does the soul from the body of the guarded. If they told their assembled relatives and friends, I just want to die, they would really hear it. Oh, you don't mean that. Or now don't talk that way. Or hang in there. Or please don't leave me. The entire medical profession is trained to keep people alive rather than keeping people comfortable so that they can die with dignity. You see, to a doctor or a nurse, death is failure. To a friend or relative, death is disaster. Only to the soul is death a relief, a release. The greatest gift you can give the dying is to let them die in peace, not thinking that they must hang on or continue to suffer or worry about you at this most crucial passage in their life. So this is very often what has happened in the case of the man who says he's going to live believes he's going to live, even prays to live, that at the soul level, he has changed his mind. And it's time now to drop the body to free the soul for other pursuits. 
When the soul makes this decision, nothing the body does can change it. Nothing the mind thinks can alter it. It is at the moment of death that we learn who in the body-mind-soul triumvirate is running things. All your life you think you are your body. Some of the time you think you are your mind. It is at the time of your death that you find out who you really are. Now, there are also times when the body and the mind are just not listening to the soul. This, too, creates the scenario you describe. The most difficult thing for people to do is hear their own soul. Notice that so few do. Now it happens often that the soul makes a decision that it is time to leave the body. The body and the mind, ever servants of the soul, hear this, and the process of extrication begins. Yet the mind, ego, doesn't want to accept. After all, this is the end of its existence. So it instructs the body to resist death. This the body does gladly, since it too does not want to die. The body and the mind, ego, receive great encouragement, great praise for this from the outside world, the world of its creation. So the strategy is confirmed. Now at this point, everything depends on how badly the soul wants to leave. If there's no great urgency here, the soul may say, all right, you win, I'll stick around with you a little longer. But if the soul is very clear that staying does not serve its higher agenda, that there is no further way it can evolve through this body. The soul is going to leave, and nothing will stop it, nor should anything try to. The soul is very clear that its purpose is evolution. That is its sole purpose, and its sole purpose. It is not concerned with the achievements of the body or the development of the mind. These are all meaningless to the soul. The soul is also clear that there is no great tragedy involved in leaving the body. In many ways, the tragedy is being in the body. So you have to understand the soul sees this whole death thing differently. It, of course, sees the whole life thing differently, too. And that is the source of much of the frustration and anxiety one feels in one's life. The frustration and anxiety comes from not listening to one's soul. Okay. Okay, so how can I best listen to my soul? If the soul is the boss, really, how can I make sure I get those memos from the front office? <laughs> the first thing you might do is get clear about what the soul is after and stop making judgments about it. I'm making judgments about my own soul? I just showed you how you judge yourself for wanting to die. You also judge yourself for wanting to live, truly live. You judge yourself for wanting to laugh, wanting to cry, wanting to win, wanting to lose, for wanting to experience joy and love. Especially do you judge yourself for that. I do. Somewhere you've come across the idea that to deny yourself joy is godly, that not to celebrate life is heavenly. Denial, you've told yourself, is goodness. Are you saying it's bad? It is neither good nor bad. It is simply denial. If you feel good after denying yourself, then in your world, that is goodness. If you feel bad, then it's badness. Most of the time, you can't decide. You deny yourself this or that because you tell yourself you are supposed to. Then you say, that was a good thing to do, but wonder why you don't feel good. And so the first thing to do is stop making these judgments against yourself. Learn what is the soul's desire and go with that. Go with the soul. What the soul is after is 
the highest feeling of love you can imagine. This is the soul's desire. This is its purpose. The soul is after the feeling, not the knowledge, but the feeling. It already has the knowledge, but knowledge is conceptual. Feeling is experiential. The soul wants to feel itself, and thus to know itself in its own experience. The highest feeling is the experience of unity with all that is. This is the great return to truth for which the soul yearns. This is the feeling of perfect love. Perfect love is to feeling what perfect white is to color. Many think that white is the absence of color. It is not. It is the inclusion of all color. White is every other color that exists combined. So, too, love is not the absence of an emotion, hatred, anger, lust, jealousy, covetousness, but the summation of all feeling. It is the sum total, the aggregate amount, the everything. Thus, for the soul to experience perfect love, it must experience every human feeling. How can I have compassion on that which I don't understand? How can I forgive in another that which I have never experienced in myself? So we see both the simplicity and the awesome magnitude of the soul's journey. We understand at last what it is up to. The purpose of the human soul is to experience all of it so that it can be all of it. How can it be up if it has never been down? Left if it has never been right? How can it be warm if it knows not cold? Good if it denies evil? Obviously, the soul cannot choose to be anything if there's nothing to choose from. For the soul to experience its grandeur, it must know what grandeur is. This it cannot do if there's nothing but grandeur. And so the soul realizes that grandeur only exists in the space of that which is not grand. The soul, therefore, never condemns that which is not grand, but blesses, seeing in it a part of itself which must exist for another part of itself to manifest. The job of the soul, of course, is to cause us to choose the grandeur, to select the best of who you are without condemning that which you do not select. This is a big task, taking many lifetimes, for you are wont to rush to judgment, to call a thing wrong or bad or not enough, rather than to bless what you do not choose. You do worse than condemn. You actually seek to do harm to that which you do not choose. You seek to destroy it. If there is a person, place, a thing with which you do not agree, you attack it. If there is a religion that goes against yours, you make it wrong. If there is a thought that contradicts yours, you ridicule it. If there is an idea other than yours, you reject it. In this you err, for you create only half a universe, and you cannot even understand your half when you have rejected out of hand the other. Well, this is all very profound, and I thank you. No one has ever said these things to me, at least not with such simplicity. And I am trying to understand, really I am. Yet some of this, some of this is difficult to grapple with. You seem to be saying, for instance, that we should love the wrong so that we can know the right. Are you saying we must embrace the devil, so to speak? How else do you heal him? Of course, a real devil does not exist. 
But I reply to you in the idiom you choose. Healing is the process of accepting all and choosing best. Do you understand that? You cannot choose to be God if there's nothing else to choose from. Whoops. Oh, hold it, hold it, hold it. Who said anything about choosing to be God? The highest feeling is perfect love, is it not? Yes, I should think so. Can you find a better description of God? No, no, I can't. Well, your soul seeks the highest feeling. It seeks to experience to be perfect love. It is perfect love, and it knows this. Yet it wishes to do more than know it. It wishes to be it in its experience. Of course, you are seeking to be God. What else did you think you were up to? I don't know. I'm not sure. I guess I just never thought of it that way. There just seems to be something vaguely blasphemous about that. Isn't it interesting that you find nothing blasphemous about seeking to be like the devil, but seeking to be like God offends you? What? Now, wait, now wait a minute. Who is seeking to be like the devil? You are. You all are. You've even created religions that tell you that you are born in sin, that you are sinners at birth, in order to convince yourselves of your own evil. Yet if I told you you are born of God, that you are pure gods and goddesses at birth, pure love, you would reject me. All your life you have spent convincing yourself that you are bad, not only that you are bad, but that the things you want are bad. Sex is bad, money is bad, joy is bad, power is bad, having a lot is bad, a lot of anything. Some of your religions have even got you believing that dancing is bad, music is bad, celebrating life is bad. Soon you'll agree that smiling is bad, laughing is bad, loving is bad. No, 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 my friend. You may not be very clear about many things, but about one thing you are clear. You and most of what you desire are bad. Having made this judgment about yourself, you have decided that your job is to get better. It's okay, mind you. It's the same destination in any event. It's just that there's a faster way, a shorter route. A quicker path. Which is? Acceptance of who and what you are right now and demonstration of that. This is what Jesus did. It is the path of the Buddha, the way of Krishna. The walk of every master who has appeared on the planet. And every master has likewise had the same message. What I am, you are. What I can do, you can do. These things and more shall you also do. Yet you have not listened. You have chosen instead the far more difficult path of one who thinks he is the devil, one who imagines he is evil. You say it is difficult to walk the path of Christ, to follow the teachings of the Buddha, to hold the light of Krishna, to be a master. Yet I tell you this, it is far more difficult to deny who you are than to accept it. You are goodness and mercy and compassion and understanding. You are peace and joy and light. You are forgiveness and patience, strength and courage, a helper in time of need, a comforter in time of sorrow, a healer in time of injury a teacher in times of confusion. You are the deepest wisdom and the highest truth, the greatest peace and the grandest love. You are these things, and in moments of your life, you have known yourself as these things. Choose now to know yourself 
as these things always. Whew, you inspire me. <laughs> well, if God can inspire you, who in hell can? Are you always this flip? I meant that not as a flippancy. Listen to it again. Oh, I see. However, it would be okay if I were being flip, wouldn't it? I don't know. I'm used to my God being a little more serious. <laughs> well, do me a favor, and don't try and contain me. By the way, do yourself the same favor. It just so happens I have a great sense of humor. I'd say you'd have to when you see what you've all done with life, wouldn't you? I mean, sometimes I have to just laugh at it. It's all right, though, because, you see, I know it'll all come out all right in the end. What do you mean by that? I mean, you can't lose in this game. You can't go wrong. It's not part of the plan. There's no way not to get where you're going. There's no way to miss your destination. If God is your target, you're in luck, because God is so big, you can't miss. Well, that's the big worry, of course. The big worry is that somehow we'll mess up and not get to ever see you, be with you. You mean get to heaven? Yes. We're all afraid of going to hell. So you've placed yourself there to begin with in order to avoid going there. Hmm, interesting strategy. <laughs> there you go, being flip again. I can't help it. This whole hell thing brings out the worst in me. Good grief, you're a regular <laughs> comedian. It took you this long to find that out? You looked at the world lately? Which, <laughs> which brings me to another question. Why did you fix the world instead of allowing it to go straight to hell? Why don't you? I? I don't have the power. Nonsense. You've the power and the ability right now to end world hunger this minute, to cure diseases this instant. What if I told you your own medical profession holds back cures, refuses to approve alternative medicines and procedures because they threaten the very structure of the healing profession? What if I told you that the governments of the world do not want to end world hunger? Would you believe me? Well, I'd have a hard time with that. I know that's the populist view, but I can't believe it's actually true. I mean, no doctor wants to deny a cure. No countryman wants to see his people die. No individual doctor, that's true. No particular countryman, that's right. But doctoring and politicking have become institutionalized. And it's the institutions that fight these things, sometimes very subtly, sometimes even unwittingly, but inevitably. Because to those institutions, it's a matter of survival. And so to give you just one very simple and obvious example, doctors in the West deny the healing efficacies of doctors in the East because to accept them, to admit that certain alternate modalities might just provide some healing, would be to tear at the very fabric of the institution as it has structured itself. This is not malevolent, yet it is insidious. The profession doesn't do this because it is evil. It does it because it is scared. All attack is a call for help. I read that in A Course in Miracles. I put it there. <laughs> Boy, you have an answer for everything, don't you? Which reminds me, we only just started getting to your questions. We were discussing how to get your life on track, how to get it to take off. I was discussing the process of creation. Yes, and I kept interrupting. That's all right, but let's just get back because we don't want to lose the thread of something that's very important. Life is a creation not a discovery. You do not live each day to discover what it holds for you, but to create it. 
You are creating your reality every minute, probably without knowing it. Here's why that is so and how that works. I have created you in the image and likeness of God. God is the creator. You are three beings in one. You can call these three aspects of being anything you want. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, mind, body, and spirit, superconscious, conscious, and subconscious. Creation is a process that proceeds from these three parts of your body. Put another way, you create at three levels. The tools of creation are thought, word, and deed. All creation begins with thought, proceeds from the Father. All creation then moves to word. Ask and you shall receive. Speak and it shall be done unto you. All creation is fulfilled Indeed, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That which you think of, but thereafter never speak of, creates at one level. That which you think of and speak of creates at another level. That which you think, speak, and do becomes made manifest in your reality. To think, speak, and do something which you do not truly believe is impossible. Therefore, the process of creation must include belief or knowing. This is absolute faith. This is beyond hoping. This is knowing of a certainty. By your faith shall ye be healed. Therefore, the doing part of creation always includes knowing. It is a gut-level clarity, a total certainty, a complete acceptance as reality of something. This place of knowing is a place of intense and incredible gratitude. It is a thankfulness in advance. And that, perhaps, is the biggest key to creation, to be grateful before and for the creation. Such taking for granted is not only condoned, but encouraged. It is the sure sign of mastery. All masters know in advance that the deed has been done. Celebrate and enjoy all that you create, have created. To reject any part of it is to reject a part of yourself. Whatever it is that is now presenting itself as part of your creation, own it, claim it, bless it, be thankful for it. Seek not to condemn it. God damn it. For to condemn it is to condemn yourself. If there is some aspect of creation you find you do not enjoy, bless it and simply change it. Choose again. Call forth a new reality. Think a new thought. Say a new word. Do a new thing. Do this magnificently, and the rest of the world will follow you. Ask it to. Call for it to. Say, I am the life and the way. Follow me. This is how to manifest God's will on earth as it is in heaven. If it is all as simple as that, if these steps are all we need, why does it not work that way for more of us? It does work that way for all of you. Some of you are using the system consciously with full awareness, and some of you are using it unconsciously without even knowing what you are doing. Some of you are walking in wakefulness, and some of you are sleepwalking. Yet all of you are creating your reality. Creating, not discovering. 
using the power I have given you and the process I've just described. So you've asked when your life will take off, and I've given you the answer. You get your life to take off by first becoming very clear in your thinking about it. Think about what you want to be, do, and have. Think about it often until you are very clear about this. Then when you are very clear, think about nothing else. Imagine no other possibilities. Throw all negative thoughts out of your mental constructions. Lose all pessimism. Release all doubts. Reject all fears. Discipline your mind to hold fast to the original creative thought. When your thoughts are clear and steadfast, begin to speak them as truths. Say them out loud. Use the great command that calls forth creative power. I am. Make I am statements to others. I am is the strongest creative statement in the universe. Whatever you think, whatever you say, after the words I am, sets into motion those experiences, calls them forth, brings them to you. There is no other way the universe knows how to work. There is no other route it knows to take. The universe responds to I am as would a genie in a bottle. You say, release all doubts, reject all fears, lose all pessimism. As if you're saying, pick me up a loaf of bread. But things are easier said than done. Throw all negative thoughts out of your mental constructions. Might as well read, climb Mount Everest before lunch. It's rather a large order. Harnessing your thoughts, exercising control over them, is not as difficult as it might seem. Neither, for that matter, is climbing Mount Everest. It's all a matter of discipline. It is a question of intent. The first step is learning to monitor your thoughts, to think about what you are thinking about. When you catch yourself thinking negative thoughts, thoughts that negate your highest idea about a thing, think again. I want you to do this literally. If you think you are in a doldrum, in a pickle, and no good can come of this, think again. If you think the world is a bad place filled with negative events, think again. If you think your life is falling apart and it looks as if you'll never get it back together again, think again. You can train yourself to do this. Look how well you've trained yourself not to do it. Thank you. I've never had the process set out for me so clearly. I wish it were as easily done as said, but now at least I understand it clearly, I think. Well, if you need a review, we have several lifetimes. What is the true path to God? Is it through renunciation, as some yogis believe? And what of this thing called suffering? Is suffering and service the path to God, as many ascetics say? Do we earn our way to heaven by being good, as so many religions teach, or are we free to act as we wish, violate or ignore any rules, set aside any traditional teachings, dive into any self-indulgences, and thus find nirvana? As many New Agers say, which is it? Strict moral standards or do as you please? Which is it? Traditional values or make it up as you go along? Which is it? The Ten Commandments or the Seven Steps to Enlightenment? You have a great need to have it be one way or the other, don't you? 
Could it not be all of these? I don't know. I'm asking you. <laughs> I will answer you then, as you can best understand, though I tell you now that your answer is within. I say this to all people who hear my words and seek my truth. Every heart which earnestly asks, which is the path to God, is shown. Each is given a heartfelt truth. Come to me along the path of your heart, not through a journey of your mind. You will never find me in your mind. In order to truly know God, you have to be out of your mind. Your question begs an answer, and I will not step aside from the thrust of your inquiry. I will begin with a statement that will startle you and perhaps offend the sensitivities of many people. There are no such things as the Ten Commandments. Oh, my God, there aren't? Who would I command? Myself? And why would such commandments be required? Whatever I want is. N'est-ce pas? Why is it therefore necessary to command anyone? And if I did issue commandments, would they not be automatically kept? How could I wish something to be so, so badly, that I would command it, and then sit by and watch it not be so? What kind of a king would do that? What kind of a ruler? And yet I tell you this, I am neither a king nor a ruler. I am simply and awesomely the creator. Yet the Creator does not rule, but merely creates, creates, and keeps on creating. I have created you, blessed you, in the image and likeness of me. And I have made certain promises and commitments to you. I have told you in plain language how it will be with you when you become as one with me. You are, as Moses was, an earnest seeker. Moses, too, as do you now, stood before me begging for answers. O oh God of my fathers, he called, God of my God, deign to show me. Give me a sign that I may tell my people. How can we know that we are chosen? And I came to Moses, even as I have come to you now, with a divine covenant, an everlasting promise, a sure and certain commitment. How can I be sure, Moses asked plaintively. Because I have told you so, I said, you have the word of God. And the word of God was not a commandment, but a covenant. These, then, are the ten commitments. You shall know that you have taken the path to God, and you shall know that you have found God, for there will be these signs, these indications these changes in you. You shall love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and there shall be no other God set before me. No longer will you worship human love or success, money or power, nor any symbol thereof. You will set aside these things as a child sets aside toys not because they are unworthy, but because you have outgrown them. And you shall know that you have taken the path to God because you shall not use the name of God in vain, nor will you call upon me for frivolous things, 
you will understand the power of words and of thoughts, and you would not think of invoking the name of God in an ungodly manner. You shall not use my name in vain, because you cannot. For my name, the great I am, is never used in vain, that is, without result, nor can it ever be. And when you have found God, you shall know this. And I shall give you these other signs as well. You shall remember to keep a day for me, and you shall call it holy. This so that you do not long stay in your illusion, but cause yourself to remember who and what you are, and then shall you soon call every day the Sabbath and every moment holy. You shall honor your mother and your father, and you will know you are the Son of God when you honor your father-mother God in all that you say or do or think. And even as you so honor the mother-father God and your father and mother on earth, for they have given you life, so too will you honor everyone. You know you have found God when you observe that you will not murder, that is, willfully kill without cause. For while you will understand that you cannot end another's life in any event, all life is eternal, you will not choose to terminate any particular incarnation nor change any life energy from one form to another without the most sacred justification. Your new reverence for life will cause you to honor all life forms, including plants, trees, and animals, and to impact them only when it is for the highest good. And these other signs will I send you also, that you may know you are on the path. You will not defile the purity of love with dishonesty or deceit, for this is adulterous. I promise you, when you have found God, you shall not commit this adultery. You will not take a thing that is not your own, nor cheat, nor connive, nor harm another to have anything, for this would be to steal. I promise you, when you have found God, you shall not steal. Nor shall you say a thing that is not true, and thus bear false witness. Nor shall you covet your neighbor's spouse, for why would you want your neighbor's spouse when you know all others are your spouse? Covet your neighbor's goods, for why would you want your neighbor's goods when you know that all goods can be yours, and all your goods belong to the world. You will know that you have found the path to God when you see these signs. For I promise that no one who truly seeks God shall any longer do these things. It would be impossible to continue such behaviors. These are your freedoms, not your restrictions. These are my commitments, not my commandments. For God does not order about what God has created. God merely tells God's children, This is how you will know that you are coming home. Moses asked in earnest, How may I know? Give me a sign. Moses asked the same question that you ask now. 
the same question all people everywhere have asked since time began. My answer is likewise eternal. But it has never been and never will be a commandment. For who shall I command? And who shall I punish should my commandment not be kept? There is only me. So I don't have to keep the Ten Commandments in order to get to heaven. There is no such thing as getting to heaven. There is only a knowing that you are already there. There is an accepting, an understanding, not a working for or a striving. You cannot go to where you already are. To do that, you would have to leave where you are, and that would defeat the whole purpose of the journey. The irony is that most people think they have to leave where they are to get where they want to be, and so they leave heaven in order to get to heaven and go through hell. Enlightenment is understanding that there is nowhere to go, nothing to do, and nobody you have to be except exactly who you're being right now. You are on a journey to nowhere. Heaven, as you call it, is nowhere. Let's just put some space between the W and the H in that word, and you'll see that heaven is now, here. Everyone says that. It's driving me crazy. If heaven is now here, how come I don't see that? Why don't I feel that? And why is the world in such a mess? I understand your frustration. It's almost as frustrating trying to understand all this as it is trying to get someone to understand it. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are you trying to say to me that God gets frustrated? Who do you suppose invented frustration? And do you imagine that you can experience something I cannot? I tell you this. Every experience you have, I have. Do you not see I am experiencing myself through you? What else do you suppose all this is for? I could not know myself were it not for you. I created you that I might know who I am. Now, I would not shatter all of your illusions about me in one moment, so I will tell you that in my most sublime form, which you call God, I do not experience frustration. Well, that's better. You scared me there for a minute. But that's not because I can't. It's simply because I don't choose to. You can make the same choice, by the way. Well, frustrated or not, I still wonder how it can be that heaven is right here and I don't experience it. You cannot experience what you don't know. And you don't know you are in heaven right now because you have not experienced it. You see, for you, it's a vicious circle. You cannot, have not found a way yet to experience what you do not know. And you do not know what you have not experienced. What enlightenment asks you to do is to know something you have not experienced and thus experience it. Knowing opens the door to experience. And you imagine it's the other way around. Actually, you know a great deal more than you have experience. You simply don't know that you know. You know that there is a God, for instance. But you may not know that you know that. So you keep waiting around for the experience. And all the while, you keep having it. Yet you are having it without knowing, which is like not having it at all. Boy, we're going around in circles here. Yes, we are. And instead of going around in circles, perhaps we should be the circle itself. This doesn't have to be a vicious circle. It can be a sublime one. Okay. A question, then. Is renunciation a part of the truly spiritual life? 
Yes, because ultimately all spirit renounces what is not real, and nothing in the life you lead is real, save your relationship with me. Yet renunciation, in the classic sense of self-denial, is not required. A true master does not give up something. A true master simply sets it aside, as he would do with anything for which he no longer has any use. There are those who say you must overcome your desires. I say you must simply change them. The first practice feels like a rigorous discipline. The second, a joyful exercise. There are those who say that to know God you must overcome all earthly passions. Yet to understand and accept them is enough. What you resist persists. What you look at disappears. Those who seek so earnestly to overcome all earthly passions often work at it so hard that it might be said this has become their passion. They have a passion for God, a passion to know Him. But passion is passion, and to trade one for the other does not eliminate it. Therefore, judge not that about which you feel passionate. Simply notice it, then see if it serves you, given who and what you wish to be. Remember, you are constantly in the act of creating yourself. You are in every moment deciding who and what you are. You decide this largely through the choices you make regarding who and what you feel passionate about. Often a person on what you call a spiritual path looks like he has renounced all earthly passion, all human desire. What he has done is understand it, see the illusion, and step aside from the passions that do not serve him, all the while loving the illusion for what it has brought to him, the chance to be wholly free. Passion is the love of turning being into action. It fuels the engine of creation. It changes concepts. To experience. Passion is the fire that drives us to express who we really are. Never deny passion, for that is to deny who you are and who you truly want to be. The renunciate never denies passion. The renunciate simply denies attachment to results. Passion is a love of doing. Doing is being, experienced. Yet what is often created as part of doing? Expectation. To live your life without expectation, without the need for specific results, that is freedom. That is godliness. That is how I live. You are not attached to results? Absolutely not. My joy is in the creating, not in the aftermath. Renunciation is not a decision to deny action. Renunciation is a decision to deny a need for a particular result. There's a vast difference. Could you explain what you mean by the statement, passion is the love of turning being into action? Beingness is the highest state of existence. It is the purest essence. It is the... Now, not now, the all, not all, the always, never aspect of God. Pure being is pure God-ing. Yet it has never been enough for us to simply be. We have always yearned to experience what we are, and that requires a whole other aspect of divinity called doing. Let us say that you are at the core of your wonderful self, 
that aspect of divinity called love. This is, by the way, the truth of you. Now, it is one thing to be love and quite another thing to do something loving. The soul longs to do something about what it is in order that it might know itself in its own experience. So it will seek to realize its highest idea through action. This urge to do this is called passion. Kill passion and you kill God. Passion is God wanting to say, hi. But you see, once God, or God in you, does that loving thing, God has realized itself and needs nothing more. Man, on the other hand, often feels he needs a return on his investment. If we're going to love somebody, fine, but we better get some love back. That sort of thing. This is not passion. This is expectation. This is the greatest source of man's unhappiness. It is what separates man from God. The renunciate seeks to end this separation through the experience some Eastern mystics have called samadhi. That is, oneness and union with God, a melding with and melting into divinity. The renunciate therefore renounces results, but never ever renounces passion. Indeed, the master knows intuitively that passion is the path. It is the way to self-realization. Even in earthly terms, it can be fairly said that if you have a passion for nothing, you have no life at all. You've said that what you resist persists, and what you look at disappears. Can you explain that? You cannot resist something to which you grant no reality. The act of resisting a thing is the act of granting it life. When you resist an energy, you place it there. The more you resist, the more you make it real, whatever it is you are resisting. What you open your eyes to look at disappears. That is, it ceases to hold its illusory form. If you look at something, truly look at it, you will see right through it and right through any illusion it holds for you, leaving nothing but ultimate reality in your sight. In the face of ultimate reality, your puny illusion has no power. It cannot long hold you in its weakening grip. You see the truth of it, and the truth sets you free. But what if you don't want the thing you're looking at to disappear? You should always want it to. There's nothing in your reality to hold on to. And if you do choose the illusion of your life over ultimate reality, you may simply recreate it, just as you created it to begin with. In this way, you may have in your life what you choose to have and eliminate from your life what you no longer wish to experience. You never resist anything. If you think that by your resistance you will eliminate it, think again. You only plant it more firmly in place. Have I not told you all thought is creative? Even a thought that says I don't want something? If you don't want it, why think about it? Don't give it a second thought. Yet if you must think about it, that is, if you cannot not think about it, then do not resist. Rather, look at whatever it is directly. Accept the reality as your creation. Then choose to keep it or not, as you wish. Who would dictate that choice? Who and what you think you are dictate that choice. And who and what you choose to be. This dictates all choice, every choice you have made in your life and ever will make. And so the life of a renunciate is an incorrect path. That is not a truth. 
The word renunciate holds such wrongful meaning. In truth, you cannot renounce anything, because what you resist persists. The true renunciate does not renounce, but simply chooses differently. This is an act of moving toward something, not away from something. You cannot move away from something because it will chase you all over hell and back. Therefore, resist not temptation, but simply turn from it. Turn toward me and away from anything unlike me. You know this. There is no such thing as an incorrect path. For on this journey, you cannot not get where you are going. It is simply a matter of speed, merely a question of when you will get there. Yet even that is an illusion, for there is no when, neither is there a before or after. There's only now, an eternal moment of always in which you are experiencing yourself. Then what's the point? If there's no way not to get there, what's the point of life? Why should we worry at all about anything we do? Well, of course you shouldn't. But you would do well to be observant. Simply notice who and what you are being, doing, and having, and see whether it serves you. The point of life is not to get anywhere. It is to notice that you are, and I've always been, already there. You are, always and forever, in the moment of pure creation. The point of life is therefore to create who and what you are, and then to experience that. And what of suffering? Is suffering the way and the path to God? Some say it is the only way. I am not pleased by suffering, and whoever says I am does not know me. Suffering is an unnecessary aspect of the human experience. It is not only unnecessary, it is unwise, uncomfortable, and hazardous to your health. Then why is there so much suffering? Why don't you, if you are God, put an end to it, if you dislike it so much? I have put an end to suffering. You simply refuse to use the tools I have given you with which to realize that. You see, suffering has nothing to do with events but with one's reaction to them. What's happening is merely what's happening. How you feel about it is another matter. I've given you the tools with which to respond and react to events in a way which reduces, in fact eliminates, pain. But you've not used them. Excuse me, but why not eliminate the events? A very good suggestion. Unfortunately, I have no control over them. You, you have no control over events? Of course not. Events are occurrences in time and space which you produce out of choice. And I will never interfere with choices. To do so would be to obviate the very reason I created you. And I've explained all this before. Some events you produce willfully. Some events you draw to you, more or less unconsciously. Some events, major natural disasters are among those you toss into this category, are written off to fate. And even fate can be an acronym for from all thoughts everywhere. In other words, the consciousness of the planet. The collective consciousness. Precisely, exactly. 
There are those who say the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Our ecology is dying, our planet is in for major geophysical disasters, earthquakes, volcanoes, maybe even a tilting of the earth on its axis. There are others who say collective consciousness can change all that, that we can save the earth with our thoughts. Thoughts put into action. If enough people everywhere believe something must be done to help the environment, you will save the earth. But you must work fast. So much damage has already been done for so long. This will take a major attitudinal shift. You mean if we don't, we'll see the Earth and its inhabitants destroyed? I have made the laws of the physical universe clear enough for anyone to understand. There are laws of cause and effect which have been sufficiently outlined to your scientists, physicists, and through them to your world leaders. These laws don't need to be outlined once more here. Hmm. Well, getting back to suffering, then, where, where did we ever get the idea that suffering was good, that the saintly suffer in silence? The saintly do suffer in silence, but that does not mean suffering is good. The students in the School of Mastery suffer in silence because they understand that suffering is not the way of God, but rather a sure sign that there is still something to learn of the way of God, still something to remember. The true master does not suffer in silence at all, but only appears to be suffering without complaint. The reason that the true master does not complain is that the true master is not suffering, but simply experiencing a set of circumstances that you would call insufferable. A practicing master does not speak of suffering simply because a master practicing clearly understands the power of the word, and so chooses to simply not say a word about it. We make real that to which we pay attention. The master knows this. The master places himself at choice with regard to that which she chooses to make real. You've all done this from time to time. There's not a one among you who has not made a headache disappear or a visit to the dentist less painful through your decision about it. The master simply makes the same decision about larger things. But why have suffering at all? Why have even the possibility of suffering? You cannot know and become that which you are in the absence of that which you are not, as I have already explained to you. I still don't understand how he ever got the idea that suffering was good. You are wise to be insistent in questioning that. The original wisdom surrounding suffering and silence has become so perverted that now many believe, and several religions actually teach, that suffering is good and joy is bad. Therefore, you have decided that if someone has cancer but keeps it to himself, he is a saint. Or as if someone has, to pick a dynamite topic, robust sexuality and celebrates it openly, she is a sinner. Boy, you did pick a dynamite topic. And you cleverly changed the pronoun, too, from male to female. Was that to make a point? Was to show you your prejudices. You don't like to think of women having robust sexuality, much less celebrating it openly. You would rather see a man dying without a whimper on the battlefield than a woman making love with a whimper in the street. Wouldn't you? I have no judgment one way or the other. But you have all sorts of them. And I suggest that it is your judgments which keep you from joy and your expectations which make you unhappy. All of this put together is what causes you dis-ease. And therein begins your suffering. How do I know that what you're saying is true? How do I know this is even God speaking and not my own overactive imagination? 
You've asked that before. My answer is the same. What difference does it make? Even if everything I've said is wrong, can you think of a better way to live? No. Then wrong is right, and right is wrong. And I'll tell you this, to help you out of your dilemma, believe nothing I say. Simply live it. Experience it. Then live whatever other paradigm you want to construct. Afterward, look to your experience to find your truth. One day, if you have a great deal of courage, you will experience a world where making love is considered better than making war. On that day, will you rejoice? Life is so scary and so confusing. I wish things could be more clear. There's nothing scary about life if you are not attached to results. You mean if you don't want anything? That's right. Choose, but don't want. That's easy for people who don't have anyone depending on them. What if you have a wife and children? The path of the householder has always been a most challenging path. Perhaps the most challenging. As you point out, it is easy to want nothing when you're only dealing with yourself. It is natural when you have others you love to want only the best for them. Well, it hurts when you can't give them all that you want them to have. A nice home, some decent clothes, enough food. I feel as though I've been struggling for 20 years just to make ends meet, when I still have nothing to show for it. You mean in terms of material wealth? I mean in terms of just some of the basics that a man would like to pass on to his children. I mean in terms of some of the very simple things a man would like to provide for his wife. I see. You see it as your job in life to provide all these things. Is that what you imagine your life to be about? I'm not sure I'd state it that way. This is not what my life is about. But it sure would be nice if this could be a, a byproduct, at least. Well, let's go back then. What do you see your life being about? That's a good question. I've had a lot of different answers to that through the years. What is your answer now? Well, it feels as though I have two answers to that question. The answer I'd like to see and the answer I'm seeing. What's the answer you'd like to see? I'd like to see my life being about the evolution of my soul. I'd like to see my life being about expressing and experiencing the part of me I love most, the part of me that is compassion and patience and giving and helping, the part of me that is knowing and wise, forgiving, and love. Sounds like you've been listening to me. Yes. Yes, it's beautiful on an esoteric level. But I'm trying to figure out how to practicalize that. So the answer to your question that I see being real in my life is that it's about day-to-day -day survival. Oh, and you think one precludes the other. Well... You think esoterics preclude survival. The truth is, I'd like to do more than just survive. I've been surviving all these years. I notice I'm still here. But I'd like the struggle for survival to end. I see that just getting by from day to day is still a struggle. I'd like to do more than just survive. I'd like to prosper. Now, what would you call prospering? Having enough that I don't have to worry where my next dollar is coming from. Not having to stress and strain just to make the rent or handle the phone bill. I mean, I hate to get so mundane. 
But we're talking real life here, not an airy-fairy, spiritually romanticized picture of life. Do I hear a little anger there? Not anger so much as frustration. I've been at the spiritual game for over 20 years now, and look where it's gotten me. One paycheck away from the poorhouse. And now I've just lost my job, and it looks like the cash flow has stopped again. <sighs> I'm getting really tired of the struggle. I'm 49 years old, and I'd like to have some security in life so I could devote more time to God stuff, to soul evoluting. That is where my heart is, but it's not where my life allows me to go. Well, you've said a mouthful there, and I suspect you're speaking for a whole lot of people when you share that experience. I'm going to respond to your truth one sentence at a time so that we can easily track and dissect the answer. You've not been at this spiritual game for 20 years. You've been barely skirting the edges of it. This is not a spanking, by the way. This is just a statement of the truth. I'll concede that for two decades you've been looking at it, flirting with it, experimenting now and then, but I haven't felt your true, your truest commitment to the game until just recently. Let's be clear that being at the spiritual game means dedicating your whole mind, your whole body, your whole soul to the process of creating self in the image and likeness of God. This is the process of self-realization about which Eastern mystics have written. This is the process of salvation to which much Western theology has devoted itself. This is a day-to-day, hour-to-hour, moment-to-moment act of supreme consciousness. It is a choosing and a re-choosing every instant. It is ongoing creation, conscious creation.